welcome, welcome to the Peripheral Views Podcast. We're back with another episode. This is uh, our second for the podcast. This is actually going to be the first, however, in our biography series. Um, we're going to do a lot of these. These are pretty interesting, um, pretty wide array of options for the biography series. We're looking forward to um, some of the other ones coming up, and we'll let you know as those arise. Um, but uh, you know, first things first, welcome to the podcast. Uh, welcome Aaron, back. I am doing pretty well. We got a I'm good a, one today. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this, actually. It's a, uh, I feel like other than, um, if other than people that are like, that have like an intimate knowledge about the boxing community, his story isn't really like well known. And it's a, it's a tragic tragic one and i feel like it's a uh, well-deserved uh it's well worth talking about well-deserved yeah and who uh who we're talking about today is um former heavyweight champion uh charles l sunny liston um he is uh you know a, an icon of professional boxing um his era is obviously like one of the most revered and uh well-studied um important eras in, in boxing history specifically and controversial and for sure controversial as we'll get into um throughout the podcast today i mean a very uh turbulent time in the sport uh, for a lot of reasons but also you know there's an argument to be made that it actually it helped that those controversies um in some ways helped put the sport um in more of a limelight um we'll get into all the details about that um throughout the podcast but uh, we'll be talking about sunny listing today specifically um so a bit of housekeeping to get us rolling here. Same spots um, as our previous first episode um, to find us. You're going to find us on Twitter uh, at peripheralv123. That's the uh, the Twitter page for any feedback you want to leave us. Um, we'll be posting the episodes on there, or a link to the episodes, I should say, uh, directly on Twitter. Um, these will be uh, also be able to be downloaded or streamed on uh, SoundCloud, and you can find us on soundcloud.com forward slash peripheral views one, two, three. Um, that's where they're going to be downloaded for the uh, as a temporary means of streaming the podcast. So these episodes will be out on that and we will update um, on Twitter as they as they get released. Um, further feedback, you can reach us by Gmail, peripheralviewspodcast at gmail.com. Um, that's the place that uh, you can feel free to Gmail, send emails as much as possible for feedback. Uh, Twitter is probably the easiest one, just being that it's, you know, that's where a lot of the feedback is going to come from. But we're open to, you know, we'll, we'll be checking the email as well pretty regularly. Um, as I said in the previous podcast, we're going to be... Um, Working on Spotify, um, publication on Apple Podcasts is coming. It's forthcoming. Um, if you're listening to this uh, retroactively, it's probably the platform that you're actually listening to this on. Um, and at this stage, um, as of today, May 24th, 2023, um, our website is still under construction, and we'll be working on getting that launched probably within you know a handful of weeks, just as we mentioned in the uh, previous episode. So. That is the housekeeping for the podcast and the status of, you know, where we're at in, in the development. Um, but uh, going into, uh, before we get into the good stuff, the meat and potatoes of today's episode, um, let's do a little recap um, on our first episode. I know that Errol and I had a couple of things that we wanted to um, 
bounce back to from the first episode. Um, that episode was on the 1982 uh, Stone Cold classic, John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, we had a bunch of fun talking about that episode uh, or about that film in that episode. Um, unpacking that, that movie was a blast. Um, and, uh, you know, I actually rewatched it a, a <clears throat> another time after recording the podcast. And there was like, obviously a million things, um, a million things to discuss in the film, but the, e- even after the recording, I found more things I wanted to talk about. So there's probably some, some revisitation opportunity, um, on that film, uh, later down the line, but Errol, you've, uh, there's a couple of things I know you wanted to talk about, about that episode, some things you missed, some things that you wanted to, uh, you know, revise or uh, revisit. So what were that, what were those things? Yeah. Um, just in general, like, uh, of course, um, I, I felt like uh, we were a little excited. So there are a couple of things that I might've uh, skipped over a bit, but that's also one thing that I wanted to address. Um, we, uh, we definitely uh, kind of dove right into that first episode and um, I do imagine, uh, I do imagine in future episodes we're going to uh, probably take like a more like reserved, like a stepping back um, point of view. Uh, it's uh, I think we did really well, but uh, my only uh, my only hangup was uh, maybe we should have had a like a dotted actual like periodical review of it. You know what I mean? Like from like sure. this this moment, like uh, you know, like the first quarter of the movie, second quarter. But uh Yeah, keeping I, things chronological. Yes, but I, I absolutely loved it. Uh I was really excited to talk about it. And uh that's that's kind of my problem. When I get a when I get a really excited about stuff, I'll start bouncing. And uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's a great. Oh, episode we both, other than yeah. that. Agreed. But um I do I just wanted to uh let that be known that we are gonna try to uh really just step back and take like a more like reserved look but a couple things that i did miss going over i believe are uh some one of them is like really important because uh if you didn't know this the uh the teams that actively like go to the arctic and like you know do that like the scientists that do that today they will watch the movie as tradition before going on up and then just isolating themselves from everyone <laughs> yeah they're I've like what this, a I've better movie before. yeah they're like what a better movie to watch before we just hang out with the same 10 people for three months than yeah. a movie about in this exact same or this ex- yeah the exact same scenario and someone's right. just a, a horrifying alien monster yeah no i had actually read something um i had actually read that somewhere along the way in my in my research for the film and um yeah, I think that's um, I think that's really funny, and because uh, it, well, it's also funny because it's funny that they still do research like that. But I don't know that that's a tradition that I would want to be a part of. I, I oh, feel like no. I mean, I mean, it gets you prepared, but man, I don't know. Maybe it, I feel like it could plant a seed of paranoia. Well, Just, no, that too, but it's really good because if something like that legit happens, they're like, nope, we told you, Chuck, you don't remember that password, do you? We watch it every year. What's the password? And then they're just like, <laughs> no, but the paranoia, you're right. No, that would, <laughs> no, I'm saying, yeah. like no, in like a legitimate, like alien scenario, they'd be like, oh, do the, do the thing. And you have to like, you know, like, uh, like tuck your left earlobe and then like wink 
in the movie. Yeah, itself. no, there's got to be like a Morse code. Like you got to have, right, a, exactly. you have to have something that can you know differentiate yourself between if, if you, you hit him with the imitated. Yeah, if you hit him with the move, the second it's like, or like if you hit him with the uh, some kind of movement, the second it happens, you just have to be like, yo, if you don't respond, it's him. Yeah, but there's yeah, but like the thing was like so good with the imitation yeah. right you it only but works once there's got to be something there's got to be maybe they have like a new technology that they can they, they can just introduce. always have everyone everyone needs to be really really okay with needles they're like blood tests no matter what everyone yeah. relax blood test the second it happens well it's funny that's like a bit of foreshadowing on the sunny listing story right there with the uh being oh. okay with needles things but we'll, we'll get to that uh, <laughs> in the in the episode um yeah no i i agree with your the first part of your uh of your uh, diatribe there about um, just trying to stay chronological. This will be a little easier to do because it is a biography and you can't really tell the story of an individual without staying somewhat chronological. Um, so we're, we're looking to do a little better job of that. I still had fun with the film and talking about the film, even bouncing around the plot a little bit. I feel like if you have seen the film, you could enjoy the podcast. If it's um, something you haven't seen yet, um, you're probably not going to get too much out of it um it's a little just more be, esoteric if you haven't seen it yeah know. it'd be a tough listen if you hadn't seen it but if you had you probably had you know you probably enjoyed you know what we had to say about it and maybe learned a couple of new you know little tidbits about the film that um could enhance a further you know future viewing um as so no said, i agree with you there yeah and as we said it's worth a watch worth a rewatch at the very absolutely. least yep, we can absolutely push anyone into watching it great if we can push fantastic film. i mean truly an amazing um an amazing piece of like the uh horror film uh what would you call it the catalog of horror films um across like 40 or 50 years it's really like at the top of the heap yeah it's definitely cream of the crop and not like your typical one because you know if you ask everyone they all like the uh like you know the chuckies and the yeah um, all right jason uh you know your michael myers nah the thing is its own the thing is its own thing but uh, anyway, so we're gonna we're we're real happy with that um, recording. I thought that went really well for especially for a pilot. I was super happy to talk about the film. And um, if you haven't checked out that episode, feel free to bounce back an episode from this one. Um, it is our pilot episode, um, so uh, feel free to go back and check that out. Um, I had an additional note I wanted to add um, going forward with this one. I try to introduce some kind of either a podcast or a piece of media. Um, that I've been interested in or that is um, that I really want to, you know, um, push into the limelight a bit um, for this episode specifically, though, I want to I want to actually only dis- I'm only going to um, include this biography that I actually used for this podcast and the research for this podcast. Um, it's called The Devil and Sonny Liston uh, by Nick Toshes, I believe is how it's pronounced. Um and uh, this this biography is one of the more uh, thorough, as far as I could tell. It's I mean it was a very important biography, um, you know, in terms of you know in terms of as books go, related to the Sunny Liston story. This was one of the ones that was that came most recommended um, in in my at least research. So I utilized a bunch of the, the book, you know, we didn't really have time to, you know, read an entire biography book front to back before doing the recording, but there was a lot of good chunks of info um, on his life that I pulled from, from that book. So that, that, that's my big recommend, I will call it. Um, 
and uh well as we dive in through the episode um you'll 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 realize um or you'll at least hear a lot of the material from that book being referenced so i feel like that was a, an interesting uh inclusion for our little intro here um so what do you think errol do you want to dive into the uh should we dive into the story of sunny liston or the introduction to sunny liston yeah we could do that or um we could also talk about the uh some upcoming boxing events the hall of fame inter- introduction right oh of course yeah let's let's do that um let's take a quick uh, a quick you know minute or two break and then uh, when we come back we're going to talk about the state of boxing today um some interesting uh fights that have happened uh recently in the last week or two and then we'll Actually, talk about some know, of the big fights coming up you know what i'd like to do um i'd like uh, to take a moment to uh, remember jim brown yeah yeah that's that's actually a good time for that let's do that before we go to break um the legendary jim brown um passed away um on may 18th uh my wife's birthday actually as a matter of fact um of last week um he was a legend of uh american football um of course um who doesn't know jim brown i mean uh, played for the Cleveland Browns um through 19 from 1957 to 65 uh widely considered from yeah, and from Sorry, played uh, at Syracuse. Right, right. Played played, played right at uh, Syracuse University. Um, was a a legendary college player. Um, for a bunch of different, probably, you know, record making reasons. Um, was a. I mean, I think most people actually. You know, I'm not the hugest football follower. Um, I know quite a bit about the sport just from a glance, but. Um, I think most people widely consider him to be probably one of the greatest fullbacks in the history of the sport. Um, um, I would, I would be one of those people. And I would actually argue that um, mm. there are a couple running backs who will like, you know, have more just there, there are people who have higher stats with like higher yards, um, more touchdowns, but his yards per carry at 5.2. That's wow. how do you, how do you beat something like that? Right. That's um, yeah. Right. That's two I mean, times. That's... He touched the ball. It's a first down. <laughs> Give the guy the ball twice. You got four downs. It's you're going to walk, you're walking home. And what's crazy too, is like with the sport of football and, and, you know, I know football is a pretty old sport, just like uh, a lot of sports. Um, but you know, he's like, he's pretty recent for like, cause you look at a sport like baseball and you see some, some of these stats that are, you know, every sport has like their, players they're iconic legendary players that that put up stats that will never touchable feats right they're just and they just managed to do that and those records hold they stand the test of time um but his is pretty recent i mean as old as the game is you know he's he's still holding records to this day um and um we definitely wanted to make sure we paid homage to him specifically you know probably more importantly because of uh his um his role in the civil rights movement in the 1950s um, and specifically related, actually very much related to this podcast. He, you know, he did um, participated in the Cleveland summit after Muhammad Ali faced imprisonment for refusing to enter the draft for the Vietnam war. And he founded the black economic union to help promote economic opportunities for minority owned businesses. So he had a big role in, especially as a, um, uh, as an African-American in the fifties and sixties in the, you know, in the world of sports, uh, utilizing his platform to um, promote civil rights, civil rights um, equalization in the, in the United States at that time, which was 
you know, very important in that, in the progress of, uh, of that movement. Yeah. No, if you ask me, the greatest thing any man can do is, uh, use whatever means he can to benefit his community. And that Jim Brown in droves. For sure. Also side note, uh, you know, he was, this is just an interesting tidbit that's way less important than, uh, than those things, but he, um, he was actually on the broadcast for the uh, very first UFC event. I don't know if you knew that. Really? Yeah, yeah. He actually sat at the uh, table and he like, um, I don't know if he necessarily called the fights, but I think he was a big um, supporter of the uh, of MMA at the time. Um, and it, you know, I think he he did have some associations with uh, or affiliations okay. with boxing. Right. And he was uh, he was hired as a color commentator for the for the UFC. Um, and actually, I'm sorry, I'm reading here. He was he, um, he actually did the first six pay per view events for the UFC, oh, wow. which is it's pretty amazing. It does make sense. They're like, hey, Jim Brown, you're used to imposing your will on man. <laughs> you, how do you feel about this fight? Oh yeah, he's really just kind of doing what I would do, just <laughs> yeah. beating him up and not letting him do anything about it. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah I'm, you you're the baddest man on the planet at this moment because the UFC technically doesn't right. exist. Like, what do you have to say? Well, he always kind of hovered around, you know, combat sports, just being, um, you know, having such a, I think he had a pretty, pretty important relationship with Muhammad Ali and the civil rights thing. So, oh, yeah. you know, there's probably, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise, but it sounds a little bit, um, it sounds a little bit surprising when you, when you read it off that way. But uh, yeah, so, you know, rest in peace to uh, Jim Brown, an icon of sports and um, super important individual um for civil rights and for uh american sports general more generally um so on that note we'll uh we'll take a uh a you know it's, it's almost a, a vow of silence or a moment of silence for jim brown and we will take a quick break when we get back we'll talk about the state of boxing uh what's coming up in in that world and in that sport and then we will uh post haste we'll get into the uh, the story of charles l sonny liston so hang tight we'll be right back talk a little bit um thanks for hanging in there we're back with uh the biography of sunny liston before we get into the uh you know the meat and potatoes of that episode um and that story of that person and 
and his uh, his role in boxing. Um, thought it would be important to talk about a little bit about where we're at in boxing, some uh, specifically about you know fights and you know where we're at in and uh, what fights have been booked, what fights have uh, taken place as the last week or two um <laughs> pardon me um so this past weekend there was a couple of big fights uh, you could call them big fight big fights in the world of boxing um not necessarily your pay-per-view sellers or anything like that not huge big you know tyson fury level uh fights but um so this past weekend uh devin haney took on vasily lomachenko for the undisputed lightweight championship that devin haney holds um this kid, Devin Haney, um, he he pulled out the win, but it was pretty controversial. Had you uh, had this hit your radar, Errol? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't know why it was controversial personally, because I, I didn't watch the fight. But I I mean, the only way it would be controversial is the judges were, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if it was rigged because it was unanimous. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I don't understand the robbery talk about it. I actually I haven't watched the fight in full. Um, I watched it, um, you know, in, you know, fast paced clips, uh, round by round. Um, it definitely looked like Lomachenko. If I, if I were guessing to watch the fight in full, it seems like I probably would have scored it for Lomachenko just on that glance. Uh, Loma is like a, you know, he's obviously a Ukrainian legend, probably a hall of famer, first, first ballot hall of famer, um, and an incredible champion himself, um. But uh, Devin Haney, yeah, he he's this kid's unbelievable. I mean, yeah, get this kids kids now thirty and zero, right? He's twenty four. Oh, twenty four. I mean, his story is pretty wild too. I mean, his dad is his uh, his dad's his head coach, Bill Haney, and um, he's got a career. I mean, he they just racked up a lot of like pro fights. Um, you know, you know, it, it, whatever. It's it's kind of one of those boxing stories where you know is it a padded record probably i mean you can probably say that if you look back at it i mean he's still a fighter though he still fought those pro fights so um but 30 and 0 and you're 24 i mean jesus we're on a pace here that's gonna look a lot like it's it's a it's a hellacious pace for a guy that age yeah but no, um it's it's definitely a definitely something special. It's a, but you see that you see that all the time um, in boxing, almost more than any other sport. Young and upper, young and young and up up and comers, just people are just hungry. But it's if you ask me, that's why the sport's scary too. You know, it is. That's there. why people die and people die in the sport. And yeah, you know, it's but they do they they make pretty good money. Um, I mean, the guys on the bottom rung definitely struggle a bit, but once they make it, if you get if you're getting into championship fights, and we'll talk a lot about that in the uh Sonny Liston story today. But um no, that fight was uh it was a good fight, thrilling fight, uh very technical. Um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of jab work. Uh Lomachenko seemed to be the you know, pushing the pushing the pace and applied quite a bit of pressure on Haney throughout the fight, from what I could see. Um, but, uh, I, I hate to judge because I, like I said, I didn't watch the the fight in full, so I don't want to, I don't want to pretend as though I feel like he won. That's what a lot of pundits are saying, but, um, nonetheless, Haney did pull out the victory. Um, we'll see what's next for him. It could be, uh, up and comer Shakur Stevenson, which would be a, a great fight. Um, you know Nico said? Ali, Nico Ali Walsh was on the undercard. That's actually, um, the grandson of, uh, Muhammad Ali. And, uh, he oh, actually man. suffered his first loss contest 
But uh, he had a lot of promise, so uh, I, I'm, I still would be interested to see where he goes. Um, you know, just being that he is, he's got it in his blood. You know, I mean. Oh yeah. Actually, I'm sorry. I, I should I should correct the record on that. He did not suffer a loss. This was a uh, this was a a draw. So. Oh okay. Undefe- undefeated still. He is eight zero and one. So I should uh, correct the record on that. Uh, importantly. Yeah. No, I was gonna say as far as the uh, uh, Haney uh, Lomachenko fight, that's uh, they say you got to uh, beat the champ to be the champ. So. Yeah, I've always hated that though. I feel like I feel like. I don't know. I feel like a 10-9 must system, you should, you know, you got to win the rounds. That should be the way. If that's if that's what you're going to, like, because you shouldn't, basically, I've always been of the opinion that, like, when the champ walks in the ring, as soon as that bell rings, he's no longer the champ. The championship is vacated. It's up for. It's your, up for. It's right. The, it's WWE, and it's a ladder <laughs> match, and you got to, whoever comes down with that belt comes down with it. Whoever yeah, drags belt claws is, it that, out. That belt is officially is officially <laughs> that's the purse at that point. Um, but anyway, so moving on, uh, we'll move on to the next one. There, uh, the other big fight of the weekend, uh, the past weekend, um, was uh, Katie Taylor and Chantel Cameron. Um, that was for the Katie Taylor going up in weight, up to uh, she moved up a weight class to junior welterweight, uh, trying to grab that belt from Chantel Cameron. Katie Taylor, um, if you're unfamiliar, she's in. Irish icon in the world of women's boxing. Um, she suffered her first defeat, unfortunately. I mean, she is like a beloved figure in uh, Irish boxing, specifically pretty much all of women's boxing. She's just probably on top of the game. She's the, uh, you know, and, and widely considered to be the greatest women's boxer of all time. Uh, she did bite off a bit more than she could chew in this one. Unfortunately, she took a, uh, her first professional loss, um, by decision, um, unfortunately for her, gold medalist. She's you know she's got a lot of she got a lot of championships, a lot of accolades. So you know it's it's unfortunate, but you know I think she'll be all right. Yeah, no, she uh, she went up in weight class. Um, that's dangerous every time. Always every, any kind of combat sport you're doing that. That's why I don't. I feel like people take the term like a uh, like you know when people or not the term but like when a uh, champions are like multi like weight class that is that's saying a lot like it is it's being being ready to fight at like any kind of it's it's grueling to uh you know make weight but it's a whole nother thing to be like you know what whatever advantages that i have at this weight class i don't need i can lose weight or gain weight like that's you know it's true true i mean i guess uh it's kind of like i mean when you're at when you're the best of the best there's only one thing to do and i guess it's move up you know so well that's the thing about it too is that because the thing about weight classes is is that everyone's fighting at at the lowest pot usually i'll say this is most most of the cases not always but i guess the majority of the cases whatever whoever's the champion of a weight class is probably fighting down to the lowest possible weight class that they can you know successfully weight cut to right Mm -hmm. so if you go up a weight class that that just means that like you're basically just not cutting the weight and another, and there's advantages obviously from like, if you can avoid a weight cut, there's some advantages there, but there's also like when it comes to fight night, this is why they've introduced a lot of rehydration clauses in like um, in professional boxing right now, which is, you know, it's a little controversial. I kind of get, I get why these clauses are being introduced because they don't want guys 
um, fighting, you know, 25 pounds sometimes outside of the weight that they, that was contractually agreed upon. Um, but you got to understand, like the, you get a guy in there who's 25 pounds heavier, but managed a good weight cut. Like that's dangerous in the sport of boxing. I mean, that's how people die. I think. Well, um, I believe uh, Dan Hooker called out uh, Islam uh, Makachev for doing something similar with a uh, right in the lightweight division a, in the UFC, right? Yeah, with the with the IV, he's like, oh, you know, it's easy to be the best when you're cheating. <laughs> you know, like. I was, I yeah, I was, uh, I was interested to see. I mean, that that uh, story kind of died after a little while. I was, I was, I was interested to see if there was going to be an investigation. I think there actually was a somewhat of a statement about that but um I, I didn't i didn't see where it went i'll tell you what that's a hard drug test testing them for saline water test look at him <laughs> he's, got, he's got electrolytes in him right now he's got tra- he's got track marks right but anyway, so yeah, that that was uh that was a tough loss for Katie Taylor. So she'll bounce back though, and they'll probably I think they're almost guaranteed to do a rematch, um, which is you know I I believe that that was in the contract. So that that's something that's coming down the pike at some point. Um, so let's move into some of the uh, upcoming bouts, uh, big big fights, um, pretty good stretch actually of interesting boxing matches, but. Um, you know, there we're still waiting to hear what's going to go on with the heavyweight uh, heavyweight division, Tyson Fury and um, Tyson Fury, Alexander Usyk, uh, Anthony Joshua, Deontay Wilder. Those four guys got to get matched up in one way or the other, um, and it's just a matter of where the chips are going to fall on those. So, no announcement on that. So everybody's still kind of waiting to see how how the chips are going to fall there. But um, some bouts that have been announced um, is Saturday, June 3rd in Detroit, Michigan, Clarissa Shields, uh, who is 13 and 0 um, as a pro is going to take on Hannah Gabriels, who is 22, two and one. And that bout will be for uh, Clarissa Shields undisputed women's middleweight championship. That's a big, um, big, important fight for that, for that, um, for women's boxing and specific, more specifically the middleweight division, which is Clarissa is a big, she's a big fighter. She's, she's not a, and she's also, I believe also a gold medalist, um, great fighter. And, uh, I believe she splits her time with MMA. She's doing both, which is interesting because, um, you know, the training is obviously going to be very different, but she's, she's making it happen. I believe she's undefeated in both. Um, true, true fighter. Oh no! Okay, I guess she's one and one in MMA, but she is thirteen and zero, and she does have multiple um, gold medals um, in the uh, in women's boxing Olympics. So um, yeah, she's she's a savage. She's a pretty unbelievable talent. Um, So that fight's coming up June third in Detroit. Um, Saturday, June tenth. This is going down in MSG. This is a big one. This will see. I, I, I'm really excited for this fight. I will definitely be tuning in for this, especially being at MSG. Uh, Teofimo Lopez Jr. eighteen one is going to take on Josh Taylor, who's nineteen and zero. Um, that's going to be for the junior welterweight title. Super excited for that fight. Uh, that fight should be um quite the uh, it's going to be a, a an event too because I think Teo is from Teofimo is from I believe uh he's Puerto Rican uh descent uh but he's from Brooklyn so like I mean they're just gonna show out in droves for him in in New York um so that'll be that'll be great to see and him up at uh him up at uh that weight class I believe it's 140 at the uh, junior welterweight um 
going right into a title fight. I mean, he had a he's had a couple of interesting fights. He lost to Cambosis, came back and got a KO, and then he had a real tough fight against Sandor Sandor uh, Martin um, back in December. Um, but uh, Teo's a super super good talent. Um, interested to see if he can get back on track after that loss to Cambosis. He actually has a win over Loma. Well, I was going uh, to say I'm not even um that well versed in boxing, but a uh, Cambosa, so that's not a, it's not a. <laughs> no, he's good. Yeah, that's what I'm, like, he's that's very good. A... Yeah, he's very good, but he couldn't handle he couldn't handle Haney. Haney beat him twice, actually. Um, Devin Haney beat him, um, beat him. Devin Haney, let's see. I'm sorry. David Haney beat him uh, full unanimous decision twice. It, neither fight were close. And they're both in Australia in Cambosa's backyard. So that's, I mean, that's a big deal. Um, that just shows how good Haney is. Um, but uh, so, yeah, Teo's got that fight coming up. Um, that should be an interesting one. Um, and then the two big ones for the summer. I mean, this is just, it's, it's exciting. I, I will say uh, before we dive into the first um, announcement that actually just was announced uh, the other day. Uh, by the other day, I think it was reported by Mike Poppinger at ESPN. Um, Terrence Crawford, Terrence Bud Crawford and Errol Spence Jr. Uh, have agreed to a deal to fight for the Undisputed Welterweight Championship on July 29th um, at the T-Mobile Arena in, in Las Vegas. That fight, my friend, will be um, iconic. I mean, just iconic and you're not allowed to root for errol spence jr because you share first Dude, names i was gonna say you already know who i'm voting for <laughs> it's not spelled the same only I one was gonna, yeah i was like we don't even share the first name there's no other reason why i'm choosing errol jr it's the it's like the it's the fight of the um it's it, like it's kind of like a i wouldn't call it hardcores mayweather pacquiao but it's like it's similar to that like level uh, especially the weight classes are the same. I think that, that those two fought at um, that should be huge. I, I I heard in a podcast today that it's actually not a signed done deal yet. This fight's been on and off and on and off so much over the last year or so. Um, so let's all hope that that fight finally gets um, delivered um, in July. And then, um, and then a week later, you've got a, a <laughs> you got a, the circus comes to Dallas, um, I suppose. And we will have uh, Errol. I want to hear your your take on this fight. Uh, you'll have Jake Paul. Uh, Jake Paul is going to take on Nate Diaz, August fifth, twenty twenty three, at the American Airlines Center in Dallas, Texas. What do you think of that? Um, I think uh, I think they're both getting paid no matter what. That's the biggest paycheck, dude. Nick, or sorry, Nate Diaz might see like a like crazy money from that. Like that stuff that is that. The kind of money that Dana doesn't hand out is all I'm saying. Oh, for sure. That's why he. Well, that's why he left. And by the way, like, um, I mean, Jake Paul. You know, say what you will about his boxing ability. I mean, the dude knows how to promote um, fights. It, people buy his fights. And it, I'm not gonna lie though. If he really knew how to promote fights, they would do a tag team match: the twins versus twins. I thought the same thing. Well, I don't want a tag team. I mean, I would love a tag team match. That would be hilarious. And just if you're gonna do the circus, if you're gonna do a circus event, <clears throat> these like gimmicky fights with like you know the Jake, like the Jake Paul YouTuber versus like 
kind of aging veteran MMA fighter, which like, I mean, it's just the fact that it's a boxing fight is like kind of like almost irrelevant. Just the fact that they're fighting in any capacity is what makes it interesting. If you're going to do that, then like, why not? Why not do the tag team thing? Get Nick Diaz in there against Logan. Right. Or yeah, at least like a, even if it's not at the legit same time, just one after one after the other. If you matched up, uh, if you had all four of those fighters, um, if you had those two matchups, I'll say, if you had, you got Jake Paul and Nate Diaz, and you managed to get a contract for Nick Diaz and Logan Paul to fight, who's main event? Who's the main event, and who's the co-main event? Definitely the Jake Paul one, anyways. Yeah, I think so. I think because Nate's, I don't know, Nate's probably a bigger star, but Nick's more of a legend, you know. Right, exactly, and the lo- but it's mainly the Logan thing. Logan's he, I don't know the exact uh, parasocial dynamic that him and his brother have going on, but I, all I know is that a lot of people he fell out of grace when he went to Japan and he filmed uh, that uh, he went to like the suicide forest and just like oh my god yeah that was funny it's like yeah, when he, he went to the suicide forest like of course like so I think I think he's been kind of just riding uh Riding this boxing train, right, or hanging out with his brother a little bit. You know, I don't know though. I don't. Uh, I don't keep up with him, sadly. Yeah, I think it was. I don't really either. I think that was kind of a long time ago. I think he's probably done some public apologizing for that to some degree. Not that that makes it any better, but um, you know. Anyways, that stuff's that stuff's just fun. I'll watch that stuff. Um, just based on the, I'll watch it be for you know the spectacle that it is. Um. I didn't want to bring this up, but I think I'm going to just while we're on the topic. There's two more little MMA. Just, I got to get my MMA fix, um, just a touch. Uh, there's two little things I wanted to interject here related to MMA. Um, did you hear about the uh, UFC 291 announcement? Did this Does this hit your radar? No, I don't believe so. Okay, don't look it up because I want to tell you the card. It was it was this card was announced. Um, I know we're doing a boxing podcast today, but um, I really wanted to um, give a little shine on this because it's got me super excited. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna give you the card from uh, from just among the fights that have been announced. I'm gonna give you the card fight by fight from the bottom up up to the main event. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so opening the card, uh, the bout order is still you know hasn't been established quite yet but this is this is going to be july 29th 2023 the delta center in salt lake city utah ufc 291 so uh one lower probably going to be on the main card big fight uh michael chiesa versus kevin holland okay nice right mm-hmm. um good fight very good fight um Derek lewis versus marcos rogerio de lima you get the black beast in there. I mean, I'm I'm always down to watch that dude fight. I don't care what state of his career he's in. I'm I'm always gonna watch that dude fight. Yeah, um, no, I'm I'm right there with you. Uh, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson versus Michelle uh, Michelle Pajeda. So that's gonna be a striker's delight. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it's gonna get. Now I'm gonna get your attention here with this one. Okay, Paulo Costa versus Ikram Aliskarov, which is um, Aliskarov is like a he's an up and coming Dagestani. Savage, um, and Paulo Costa um, is, is uh, you know, Paulo Costa. He, yeah, it's Paulo Costa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the man, the, his nickname is Eraser, which is like, <laughs> I mean, excellent, right? But that's the thing, man. Those uh, Dagestan, man, they brew. I know 
the meanest people not like me but they the baddest people on earth like when it comes yeah. to like wrestling and it's just, just true it's just sports. true yeah he's and he's he's like a four-time world uh champion in combat sambo so I was like, like don't tell me uh, i was gonna say don't say sambo i was like you're gonna nah, say he's sambo yeah. well he's yeah, from dagestan this is yep. what they do this is what the they sambo do. So that, is just too have you it's too much it's so it's so unorthodox because like i've wrestled in high school and i've always like you know like just like collegiate wrestling i'm like oh like you know that's pretty nice and it transitions well into uh mma so it really takes does. it takes wrestling and it flips it on its head it goes to the extremes to where like it's it's like ankle picks and then just movement of the body like it's just no like a what is it, like the have you seen like that russian uh like the the russian like arm drag like where you just you just if you're if you're both crouched over and you grab someone's wrist, you can just st- stretch it out to the side and just. Oh, right, right. Yeah. You'll just sure. yep. do like a, like that's like the kind of stuff like that. They'll just like grab your leg and like, yeah. No, yeah. It's unbelievable it's pressure. And it's what I, they manipulate. What I always see that like the, and we won't go to, we don't have to go too deep into this, into the weeds of this, but um, what I always see as a tactic is that like, I just feel like um, there's like a willingness to manipulate the offensive body in ways that like traditional wrestling doesn't offer like like you watch habib and like there's so much shoulder like top shoulder like uh head and neck pressure that they're willing to apply in angles that don't make sense right because it's like they're not worried about getting pinned no and it's it actually it's very conducive to ground and pound which is why when people people would always comment about habib being this you know a very boring fighter he's just not He's not a boring fighter. You go back and watch his fights. I mean, he was punishing. Uh, you ever see the fight against um, what he did to? Uh, oh, who was it? Uh, it was earlier, one of the earlier fights. It could. I don't think it was Barboza. Maybe if he fought Michael Johnson, might have been Michael Johnson, where he's just raining elbows from this very. And you look at his legs, and he has like, this is what I mean with like the awkward, the awkward pressure applying positions. Like his hips are just in his ankles are kicked out and his knees are straight into you. And he's like, he's applying this. It's like weight distribution that is just um, very hard to deal with for a defensive wrestler in any capacity. And boy, those guys, they're coming on in a lot of million, in a million different ways. And there are a lot of them and they're taking over the sport, which is pretty yeah. interesting to watch, but uh, let's move back. Let's continue up the card a little bit here. Um, so after the Paul Acosta fight, so that's four fights right there that you've got to be somewhat interested in, right? Um, oh yeah, no, that's a, a huge card already. Already good fight, good card. Now, now, now let's get to the goods. Uh, Tony Ferguson uh, is back, and he'll be fighting Bobby Green, Bobby King Green. That is appropriate matchmaking, as far as I can tell, because Tony is Tony's. He's lost about five in a row. Um, one of them pretty viciously, Michael Chandler. I mean. Michael Chandler all but kicked his head right off of his shoulders. Um, and Bobby Green is – Bobby Green's a good fighter, but he's not – you know, it's about time that Tony Ferguson started to stop fighting people at the top of the division, right? Yeah. I was going to say he also lost uh, control of a vehicle while intoxicated, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, did you, see the fun, did you see the funniest comment? I hate to be besmirch the poor man in his, uh, in his you know, uh, trying time here, but somebody, somebody made the comment that he uh, – Tony Ferguson, El Kukui tried to do the uh, the Amani role uh, in the whip. 
Jesus. Which, which is this? The, the Iminari. He, he Iminari roll. I'm sorry. I Iminari told, rolled the whip. Yeah, he Iminari rolled the whip. I, I totally botched that. Um, uh, he, he, I thought that was pretty, uh, that's I mean, that's awful. That's an you awful know what? So here's the thing. I've always been in like Tony sad. Ferguson's corner. I've been like, you know what? Like, despite all the nonsense, he's kind of charismatic and stuff, but dude, I'm, I might, I might have to, I might be done after the, after the DUI, man, that might. Yeah, it's not good. And he had a pretty yeah. bad episode with his kid. Like he like kidnapped his own child, which I don't think he can do that. But I think he was under the influence or something, and he got into it was. So even then, that was yeah, that was before I was a. Uh, I was willing to look that off. I was like, you know, maybe he's in an episode. If it, I mean, if it happens again, kind of thing. But you compound that on top of this, and I'm like, you gotta at some point you gotta start yeah. making better decisions all the time. Yeah, I mean, you're put. You're in your. I think he's almost forty. It's like. It's hard to be sympathetic anymore at that stage. I personally think, um, and I hate to, you know, I know we're prying on this, uh, you know, UFC card quite a bit. So and we'll, we'll move off it here momentarily once we finish up. But I, I do, I do contend that Justin Gagey um, single-handedly stole Tony Ferguson's career. Um, I don't think he's ever been the same since that fight. That fight was absolutely brutal, um, and he caught Gagey a few times in the fight, but I. I still contend. I've, I have not seen Tony Ferguson of old since that fight. It was that brutal. Um, but let's move to the co-main. Okay, let's roll into it. Now you get – so you got a good card right there. That's already five really good fights. Let's roll into the co-main event of the evening. Jan no, the co-main. <laughs> no, it gets better. It gets way better. Okay, the co-main and main are going to blow your blow your socks off here. Um, Jan Blachowicz at light heavyweight will be taking on Alex – Poetan Pereira, who is moving up from middleweight after getting knocked out by Israel Adesanya. Uh, he's going up to light heavyweight to fight Jan Blachowicz um, as his 205 debut. So that fight is fireworks. And somebody's wow. somebody's yeah, somebody's going to sleep. It, yeah, no, they're – I. he's braver than me. That's – He just got knocked out. It's kind of soon. And then moving Excuse up? Yeah, and moving – well, listen, he's always going to be a 205-er. I mean, he's he's such a uh, big dude for 185 to begin with. So, um, But anyways, so that that's your co-main. That's a monster fight. And let's wrap this up. Big, big, big main event. Super excited about this. This was announced this week. Um, Dustin Poirier versus Justin Gagey 2. For the, for the BMF title after Jorge Masvidal – uh, retired Dana White is pulling the old BMF title out for all the bullshit reasons you can imagine. You know, obviously promotionally he needs a belt on the line for that fight. He doesn't really need one. I mean, the fight is amazing on its own. Yeah, yeah. but he's gonna but bring I mean, it out. I mean, I can't think of like uh, two other people that are like better uh, better suited uh, for it. I totally deserve it. I love both of those fighters. Me too. I don't even know who I like. I don't want to see either one of them lose. I hope it ends in a draw. I hope it ends in a draw. Straight up, or they knock each other out like simultaneously. But no, like a uh, uh, before we do dwell on it, who 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 do you have? Who do you, who do I think is going to win? Yeah, yeah. You know, I thought about the fight today because it's it's my most anticipated fight of the year, and like this is what combat sports is about. Like this is the kind of fight that fans love. This is the fight, kind of fight I love. I. It's funny because like their fight styles are just so reckless. Not reckless. I mean, it's not total recklessness. It's just that they're they're so uh, 
striking heavy and they just they really just they're the two of the fighters that i would think of if you asked me like what two guys are true brawlers and it's so right. apropos that we're talking about Sonny Liston today because Sonny Liston was this of that era, just an absolute brawler. Throw caution to the wind, chin down, bite down on the gum shield, and just and just bang, throw. And these guys do that every fight. It's just every fight is exciting and fun, and they're looking to get you out of there. They're not looking to hear the final bell, and usually they don't. Um, so I think that's going to be – that's just going to be a lot of fun. And uh, who I have, I had a, um, I had a vision today, and uh, when I was thinking about the fight, and I just, I got a feeling, and it makes me sad to say this, but I really, I've got a feeling. I think Justin Gagey's going to finally. I think Dustin Poirier has taken one too many wars, and I think this is eventually he's just due. I hate to say that because I love the guy. He's he's really likable. You know, that's person. the sport, though. I know, but he's just you so dude. So lucky. I mean, McGregor knocked him out at 145 years ago. Um, I think Michael Johnson knocked him out too. Um, but I think that might have even nah, that was, I think, his lightweight, uh, his 155 debut. I don't. I just got a weird feeling that Gagey's gonna catch him because Gagey's really just like polished this game up, and um, I don't know. I just part of me thinks that. Poirier's going in for a brawl and he's getting up for a war. Like he's ready to have a war. And I think Gagey's got different plans. I think Gagey's going to be more conservative than Poirier thinks. And I think he's going to, he's going to try to slick fight him and try to catch him with something in a, off a clinch break or something like that. That's kind of what I'm envisioning. So hold me to it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, you know, great fight though. No, I definitely um I, I see exactly where you're coming from. I uh, I really want Dustin to uh not like really want him to win, but I do uh I have a soft spot for uh for the old Cajun. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I could see I could see why that is. And he's uh he's just a likable person. Really good really good dude. A they lot of foundation. Are. They work. both are great. They're really Yeah, great. they are. Yeah. I mean I gotta be honest, I'm not like a huge fan of like the of of Gagey hanging out with like Ramza Kadyrov and shit like that's not cool or at least his son I don't know if he's actually hung out with Kadyrov as like a um, you know on a personal level but he's definitely at least been photographed with his son which I don't know that's I feel a little weird about that personally unfamiliar yeah you're unfamiliar uh, yeah oh yeah Ramza Kadyrov is like the uh, dictator of uh of Chechnya um and he's like a pretty horrible person he's been accused of like purging gays and like you know committing some pretty horrific war crimes and uh some of these ufc fighters go over there he's like a big ufc guy and uh oh. fighters go over there and they collect a they we it's assumed that they collect a pretty good paycheck to go over and you know um, you know whatever powwow and i just think that's a little unethical but I don't hold it against him. Dude's just trying to get paid. So, yeah, that's so you know he definitely got paid for that picture. Yeah, oh for sure. But uh, anyway, we don't have to go into the you know international politics of that. But uh, uh, one more uh, big thing I want to get to. We'll try to coast through it pretty quick um, before we get into the uh, the uh, story of uh, Charles L. Sonny Liston. Um, 
Two things. Number one, uh, the 2023 International Hall of Fame induction uh, will be held June 8th through June 11th that, that weekend. Um, right here in Canastota, New York. I didn't know if you knew this, Errol, but the uh, Boxing Hall of Fame is right here in my backyard. Um, oh, yeah. Just outside of Syracuse, New York. Um, so that induction will be going down that weekend. Um, and the fighters that will be inducted are Timothy Bradley Jr., who ended his career with a 33-2-1-1 record. So he had a draw and a no contest. Um, unlucky fellow there. Uh, Carl Frock. Uh, I believe that's how or Froke. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. I'm unfamiliar with the fighter, unfortunately. Uh, he's 33 and one with a he retired with a, a pretty good record at 33 and one. Uh, he'll be inducted this that weekend. Uh, Rafael Marquez, 41 and nine. Uh, hell of a fighter. I was looking at his resume. I mean, he's he's and I actually saw some highlights from, from his career. I mean, he was a vicious, vicious puncher. Um, great fighter and uh, by all accounts, a very good uh, career. Um, on the women's side, Alicia Ashley will be um, will be inducted with a record of 24, 12, and 1. And Laura Serrano will also be inducted uh, 17, 4, and 2. Um, all appear to have really great careers. Um, should be a, a moment in the sun for them. So big congratulations to those fighters um, on their Hall of Fame induction. And um I had one more tidbit I just wanted to touch on. I probably should have tied this into the UFC thing, um, but uh, I did want to talk about the Francis Ngannou deal. Um, I don't know if that oh, hits yeah. your radar. Um, he signed a deal with the uh, the PFL um, the, as a, I believe that was last week. Um, is a big is a big deal in the world of combat sports. Obviously, it's a UFC MMA um, mostly story. Um, However, uh, there is a component to it that does touch the boxing world um, because from my understanding, his deal does allow for him to take a boxing fight. Um, and I think his plans are to take a boxing fight in the next uh, 12 months or so before re-entering uh, the world of MMA with the PFL. So um, I thought that was a big deal. What did you think about it? Yeah, no, that actually, uh, the reason it uh, popped out, um, popped in on my radar was uh... – I saw the uh, the tweet between uh, him and uh, John Bones Jones where uh, he was like, oh, you're uh, saying you're the baddest person on the other side of the street. And then Francis Nagano was like, cross the road. Yeah, that was good. That was I was nice. like, oh, snap. <laughs> God damn, can you imagine that fight? Can you imagine what that fight would look like? I mean. Oh, was... yeah. I don't see. I John Jones, I don't... he's. I like his chances against a lot of people, but if there was going to be one person where I can just see that not going his way, it'd probably be the dude who technically has the strongest punch on earth right now. Yeah. I mean, it's like, he's just got that great equalizer and um, you know, Jones has has a, Jones has a legendary chin, how that fight would look. I don't know. I personally, Jones and Ghana is number one of all the fights I want to see Francis fight. Um, obviously, that would be in the MMA world. But I actually really, I was thinking about it the other day. I would be so interested, and we can, and this this will pull us back into boxing a little bit. I would be really, really intrigued to see what it would look like um, if he got matched up with Deontay Wilder in the boxing mm -hmm. ring. 
Um, I think that that fight is more competitive than people probably would give it credit. I would still favor Deontay Wilder. He's got, you know, 50 pro fights. He's got, he's been boxing for much longer. Um, but there's a lot of flaws in the Deontay Wilder boxing technique or the, uh, the technical aspects of his game have not been, uh, they're developed of course, but like as far as heavyweight boxing goes, I mean, you saw this in the Tyson Fury fight. I mean, he doesn't have to be the more technical fighter because he has such incredible power. And, you know, he was a Sonny Liston type of fighter, really. Like, yeah, like a truly kind of our, our era's uh, Sonny Liston in a lot of ways. Um, thankfully, not as, you know, troubled outside of the ring, thankfully. But, um, but truly, a, uh, I, I mean, those two both would bring to the table – I think Francis, as far as the top boxers go, I don't want to see him in there against Tyson Fury. I think Tyson Fury picks him apart and dances around him for 12 rounds, and I don't see that going very well. Um, but I'd love to see the Wilder fight. I think that would be if, – if, of all the fights that I think Francis should be focused on, I think that's the that's the boxing fight I'd like to see. And uh, we'll see we'll see where the MMA side goes. So, um, yeah, it could sell. You're right. Absolutely, it could sell. So – that is it for um, our intro. We caught you guys up a little bit, uh, probably more than we should have. But the, uh, yeah, like the state, yeah, you know what? The state of boxing and combat sports in general is really thriving right now in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's a lot to look forward to, um, and it's a uh, it's it's an exciting time for combat sports. So we wanted to, you know, kind of give a little update, kind of. Uh, keeps things topical for the uh for the podcast and there were some really big announcements in the last couple of weeks especially the spence crawford fight getting announced is um at least announced that it's agreed to i don't think the contracts have been signed yet but let's pray to god that flight gets um across the finish line in terms of uh you know all the contractual obligations let's get him let's get him on at least in the right direction of of, uh, of, of a big big time flight for the summer um, but that's the state of boxing as of right now. Um, so what do you say, Errol? Let's take a quick, uh, we'll take a quick break. Um, and when we return, we're going to talk about an individual that, um, boy, his story is, uh, is not for the faint of heart. And, uh, Errol and I are going to dive into that. We'll start off with the early years, um, to kick things off, but we're going to begin the story of Charles L. Sonny Liston when we get back after this break.
Okay, thanks for bearing with us again. We're back from the break. We're going to dive into the story of Charles L. Sonny Liston. Um, what a story it was um, to do a bunch of research on. It was really a, it's an enthralling story. There's a lot to it. There's a lot of ups, a lot of downs. Unfortunately, probably mostly downs for uh, a good majority of it, but uh, an important person to talk about, especially in the world of combat sports, in the world of boxing more specifically. Um, he was uh, in the he he fought in the most probably the most important era of uh, heavyweight boxing for sure, and maybe in boxing in general. Um, so we're gonna dive into the early years of uh, Sonny Liston um, and where he came from. Um, so diving in, there was um, a little bit of controversy up front um, on, in terms of his uh, his birth year is actually a bit of um, it's a bit unknown exactly. Um, they have a general idea, but um, unfortunately for uh, poor black families in the Depression era, it was uh, it was not required to have birth records um, when he was first born. Um and especially in Arkansas, and you know, you're talking about the, the Midwest um, during the Depression era. Um, so unfortunately, he doesn't have an actual birthday, but he was born into a sharecropper's family. Um, they grew, uh, I believe they grew corn and wheat and a few other grains. Um, very, very, very poor. Very, very, very poor um, upbringing. And um, in Arkansas, he was... Um, he was one of uh, he was one of I believe in total between his father and his mother and and they, they didn't have all of the all of these children together but he was actually one of twenty five children, uh, like twenty four of twenty five if I'm not mistaken. He was the twenty fourth. Yes, you're right. Yep, I believe that's yeah. correct. Um, so he was. Um, so you can imagine that even a family who was thriving financially or in agriculture, you know, they would even struggle to feed well, that many mouths. So the this the sad part of it is uh we're dealing with a sharecropping family two generations after slavery. So it's it's very important to uh, note that this uh it's it's not going to be a, a a pleasant upbringing. Um, the way he was raised was likely how his father was raised, which was in slavery. It's almost the only thing you know. He was him, and I imagine his um all of his uh, siblings were severely abused and like used as you know almost as like slaves would be used because that's how it was. You needed someone to till the land. I mean, maybe not as like not as absolutely vile as like owning a person, but I mean when you when you're on a farm in the middle of nowhere, uh, I, I mean, it's, uh, he, he was abused. He was whipped. That is, uh, yeah. you know, a fact about Factual. his life. And, uh, uh, I believe, uh, yeah, they, uh, it's estimated, uh, he was born, yeah, somewhere around like the 1930s. Um, yeah, it looks like it was possibly May 8th is the, uh, day his mother had been, has been, had been quoted as, um, she actually, I believe she had, um, I believe that she had mentioned somewhere along the way publicly that he had that she thought he was born in 1927 or she had said that it, with confidence but that it still had never been confirmed because birth records had birth records were act, were not actually mandated in the state of Arkansas until 1965 
um and especially for a for a poor black family in the u.s at that time that um, u.s could care less about the actual yeah of course statistics of yeah yeah a horrible time um especially in arkansas which was already a poor state to begin with um depression era um but no you're absolutely right about you know the conditions um he was quoted as saying i had nothing when i was a kid but a lot of brothers and sisters a helpless mother and a father who didn't care about any of us we grew up with few clothes no shoes little to eat my father worked me and whooped me hard he started to work early his father his father's opinion was quote if he can sit at the table he can work which is horrible just a horrible horrible. you can sit up yeah, meaning meaning wow. meaning three. that child being able to sit at the earlier than three. My daughter, yeah, like two. Old. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they weren't doing true labor at two, but as no soon point. as they were able physically to, to contribute, he was he was guaranteed to to force them. The to second you were able to pull yourself up to that table, yeah, I mean, just enough a to contribute thing. to it. And you know, I, I hate to you know, I don't want to split hairs, but I actually think that that was probably the condition of most poor families in um in the uh in an agricultural setting like that not just black families while i'm sure there are other racial struggles going on pretty much on the daily for a black family in arkansas i actually think that that was pretty commonplace for any family especially depression era united states yeah um in the bread basket i mean it was a it's a it's an amazing you know period of time and, and i don't mean in a good way but um so that's that's the start of his life. Not off to not not dealt a very you know um, advantageous hand for sure. The um, the abuse would continue from his father. Um, it was it was a pretty horrible horrible experience. Um, he uh, let's uh, let's let's dive a little bit into the, some of the harder stuff to hear. Um, his father inflicted whippings that were so severe on Sonny that the scars were still visible decades later. Quote, the only thing my old my old man ever gave me was beating, Sonny said. Um, in 1946, Helen Baskin, along with some of her children, moved to St. Louis to seek factory work. Sonny, uh, age 13, according to his later reckonings, remained in Arkansas with his father. But right there, it tells you, um, you know, his, mo- his mother is in over her head, obviously, yeah. um, to leave because the, the, the abuse is going on and she's just getting out of Dodge. And uh, well, also what do you do as a single black woman trying to leave abuse with 25 kids? You can't get them all and she can't feed all of them. There's no way to get out of that situation. Implausible. Right. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Um, So she, she does get out though, which is a, which is, you know, a, a good part of the story that she got out of, she got out of that situation um and and eventually so did he um so uh going forward um he finally does leave uh for st louis to meet his mother and by all accounts it seems like his mother continued to be in over her head um you know having to raise all these children um it, I didn't find anything about how many of the children went with her, but she is in St. Louis and things start to turn south for uh, Sonny Liston when he gets to St. Louis. Um, um, I heard uh, the breaking point for him wanting to uh, leave when he was, I think it was around like 13 years old or so. Um, he was uh, working on the farm and then uh, as he, you know, always did and the mule died. And then, so he goes to his father and he goes, the mule died and he goes, you're the mule now like 
so get to work like what are you waiting for and um at that moment i think he probably realized that there was absolutely nothing that was going to be beneficial at that relationship that he was having and um yeah i think um i heard somewhere that he wanted he went to a st louis louis and he tried to go to school yeah and i don't think i think he started i think he started in school and um he stopped going um i think that even eventually stopped going you got to think this is a person who was raised working since they were able to move he was he was a hulking individual almost his whole life it's something it's a here's one thing i i would like to emphasize about sonny liston this man was he didn't grow up in like a boxing school or anything like that he was just conditioned by a hard life it's something that you cannot teach it's something that happens it's a you know a diamond under pressure this is a man who was whipped his you know whole childhood you get your high tolerance to pain and just once the mule died his dad said you're the mule now he was used as farm equipment he is a he was you you end up being a very strong person if that happens there's i'll tell you what i've lived a pretty like candied life i've you know i maybe helped lift a couple bales of hay or whatnot but i didn't do that my whole entire childhood you're looking at the strongest kid that like probably shouldn't exist at that point like you know right when you're that brolic walking around in you know st louis you're gonna get a lot of weird looks they thought he was like a grown man they're like what are you doing here right you hear stories you hear stories about how like mike tyson was like 220 pounds in like the eighth grade or something ridiculous like that and and you got to terrifying right you got to imagine that sonny liston both fought in the same division i don't think he was quite that big um but he was he was i I believe i read that he was somewhere around 200 pounds um at the age of like 15 like he was no kid was huge um grown man yeah, basically the size of a grown man. Um, so I, you know, with all the hardships okay, so, of a grown man, tenfold. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and that's all inflicted upon him by intergenerational trauma um, from his father, and probably from, probably you could trace it back all the way to um, his enslaved ancestors. I mean, it's just one generation of of abuse from great great grandpa slaveholders. Yeah, I mean, slaveholders inflicted horrors onto the ancestors of his family and down the line it went and um it's just it's just a it's a tragic start to his his life and it it didn't get much better from there so let's move into the next the next chapter here of his um of his upbringing so uh he had no education or any other skills um uh so he he kind of started a to begin in a life of crime, I mean, he got he the run-ins with the police were were pretty frequent. Um, he did eventually join, unfortunately, join a, a gang of sorts, um, and they um, he committed a robbery. I believe it was somewhere around 1950. He committed a robbery with this gang, um, maybe a little bit before 1950, 1948, 1949, somewhere in there. Um, he committed a, a robbery, um, and because he's you know he's not he's not a street kid he's a farmer like he's a farmer i mean at this point okay i'm sorry it looks like it's um yeah around 1950 he commits a robbery and he's wearing a bright yellow shirt um so like once again not a street smart kid he's he's lived his life on the farm doing manual labor um and he gets he gets pegged as the yellow the yellow shirted bandit um and he gets (laughs) 
he and the police are are now on his trail. I think he he and his buddies were at a barbecue and they the cops finally got their um got their got their attention focused on him and uh he he ends up getting arrested for this robbery. Um and he did wind up going to prison in 1950 um, for larceny and first degree robbery. Um, these crimes led to several five year sentences, but uh, Sonny was released on parole in 1952. But, you know, um, there is a silver lining to his time in prison because this is when the boxing career truly started. Um, yeah, that's where he was able to uh, finally uh, have an outlet something that more like matches speed because i mean when you start off and like uh it, imagine that no you have no schooling you're like what can i do for a job i have no education and then like you know you look over on the street corner you're like how are these guys getting stuff you know and they're like oh it turns out they are being seedy and by I force am, <laughs> yeah i'm the i'm also the baddest guy my age so let me see what i can do and for apparently a couple years there was just the, a neighborhood terrified of a dude walking around in the yellow shirt, like yellow, yeah. yellow shirt, stuff your chain. He's covered. <laughs> he's like Devo. <laughs> right, like legit, they're like, yo, it's, he's, it's yellow shirt. Chill. <laughs> he's like, running. Yeah, so he's like, <laughs> oh, he had it. Yeah, I mean, he had, he had that Devo vibe. Yeah, that that's what line. he's oh my god almost exactly like if you just yeah. see him hulk, Truly. Uh, hulking individual um mm -hmm. freakishly long arms which would come to huge hands well. too bear mitts on him like big bear mitts very so very that that's one controversy hands. to his reach because you measure fingertip to fingertip so people say because of his freakishly huge hands that it's not necessarily but like you're dealing with a a, a giant man like Bro, he had a, dealing with a big guy. He had a he had a John Jones reach. He had an 84 inch reach, and he was three inches shorter than Jones. And Jones is like a historic. I mean, I know, I know it's a different sport, but like that's insane. He was six one, and his yeah, no, reach there's people, there's people saying it's all fingertip. Yeah, it could be. I mean, his hands were abnormally large. If you see photos, um, if you go look through photos of Sonny Liston, there are a few of him next to one of his trainers. Um, standing and they've got their hands they're like the same height and their um and their hands are side by side and Sonny's hands is, it's it might be triple the size of um one of his trainer's hands I mean just enormous enormous I've, um, I've never seen a built hand, for boxing I've never seen a hand like bulge out of a boxing glove like in a picture before like a picture of if you just look up Sonny Liston he's just holding those boxing gloves and you see his hands through those like that that provide the 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 padding is providing no support at that at that time, not for that right. man. Nope. Yeah, I mean that's I mean he's that's filling part, out that glove. Right. And this this is where the legend starts to begin. You know, while he's in prison, he's I mean, he's cleaning up in this prison, um, which is the Missouri State Penitentiary. Um, you know, he's been sentenced to five years in prison. Um, he started his prison time you know, on June first, nineteen fifty. And um he he According to, you know, according to research, you know, Liston never complained about prison and he, and that was, and you hear him say, because he was guaranteed three meals every day. You hear, you read that and you think immediately the, the upbringing was, was that bad, uh, clearly then, that bad, clearly hungry a lot. So the upbringing's that bad and he is that bad to where 
this is the time of his life. Yeah, he's, like, he's getting he's fed like every day. Three, three meals. He's like, this is never complained about prison. Okay. Mm-hmm. Plus, he has an outlet. I always think that when I hear that, I think to myself, well, he finally has this like athletic outlet, um, and it's an aggressive one. So it, it's like this, uh, you know, a place for him to displace some of his aggression that he clearly. I mean, if there's ever an individual walking around with you know psychological trauma to deal with, it's going to be. Sonny, it's going to be anyone who has lived a life similar to Sonny Liston at that time. He did at, it. And at he that did it age. to such a. He did it to such effect that uh, people were afraid to fight him. Um, people would go two or three people at a time in those uh, in the prison boxing matches. Right. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind insane. Of, what? It, that's what I'm trying to. I'm at that point. You're you're dealing with a with physically a different person that it borderline t- t- superhuman. You know what right. I mean? Like, yeah, when you're sending, when you're looking, like, I'm not gonna fight him by myself. You're like, all right, if me, Ricky, and Don can go, we might have a fight. Yeah. And then just losing, just still. Well, they had a league in the, They had a league in the state penitentiary, and, and he he cleaned up in that league. I mean, he made he made work of basically any inmates that dared actually challenge him. Um, in this you know in this new trade of his. Um, Reverend Alloy uh, Stevens um, was actually the man that introduced boxing to him, um, and Stevens was kind of a mentor um, to uh, to Sonny throughout his his time in prison, specifically. And actually, as he was kind of developing this boxing skill in um, in prison, uh, the Reverend Reverend Stevens actually tried to tried to help get him released uh, get him granted early release um from prison to uh for for the sake of of trying to get him into competition um and i don't think it it, it didn't work initially but eventually he, he was granted an early release eventually um but uh the story goes that he brought in uh an actual pro boxer thurman wilson um to brought him in to fight uh so they brought you know he's fighting he's fighting other you know inmates at this point which are mm-hmm. you know none of them are professional boxers or at least if they're professional then maybe they're amateur maybe they have a professional fight if you know potentially but probably not probably most of them are just boxing um to pass the time and um so they bring in thurman wilson who is an actual pro heavyweight and he comes in and he, after two rounds in an absolute beating that uh that Liston put on him he was quoted as saying you better get me out of this ring this man's gonna kill me in a fight in a fight like you're right. in a boxing match you're like i you're like coach i he's I'm he's done. not fighting me man he's, he's trying to kill me he's trying to murder me with body shot like he's he's i'm not gonna wake up <laughs> well you gotta imagine that's kind of how things probably you know he's probably getting a lot of um he's getting a lot of his frustrations and and his anger and his trauma is all coming it's all it's all pouring out of him at this point you um, can't hurt him there's no way you can hurt him more than his father did right, as a child yeah. as a child well, he had it was it was um an important note it was um just you know upon photographic evidence and as his kind of backstory unfold you actually could visibly see the scarring from his father's whippings like um they were on his skin and obviously a boxer is, is is you know his skin is exposed every time he's out there fighting and those those scars were visible and i've actually it's tough to tell in the grainy footage from the 1950s boxing um 
you know, filming that it's it's very difficult to actually make out the scarring, but you can somewhat see, um, and you can actually you can obviously read about it and that uh, people uh, photographers specifically when we get to the uh, Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali fights, um, you know, there's plenty of footage of those fights and you can actually make some of that stuff out a little bit better. But um, circling back, so um, and I just want to ensure we stay on on a chronological order here. Um, so while he's in prison. He does. He does eventually get a, a release, um, and unfortunately, and this is just be, this is the tragedy. In my in my view, this is like a very crossroads moment for uh, Sonny Liston, um, and it very much uh, exemplifies his his career in a lot of ways in, in for, his life. For a person who was on the fence, I believe I know exactly where you're going about this, and I yeah. As soon as he gets out, he starts getting groomed with the Italian mafia. Frankie Carbo and Blinky Plumero, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. I'm sorry, Paul. Pa, uh, pa, yeah, Palermo. Palermo was the last name. I, I, I can't remember the first name. Let's Here, here's the thing. I when I watched a um, I was watching like you know like a documentary on Sunny Liston or like some YouTube video, and they kind of just buzzed past this. Frankie Carbo or Carbo guy, bad Carbo man. was a vicious, vicious bad vicious man player. from the start. Sure. Here's the thing, too. Same, same grace I'll give everyone in a bad spot. Grew up into it. Early years, though, at age of eleven, they're sending him to the uh, New York State Reformery for juvenile delinquents. Mm-hmm. It's a reformery school that is we know very well that at those times it was not a reformery school. That is just. It's gonna make it worse. It's um, yeah. Blinky any- Blinky Palermo was the name. Just before we moved too too far beyond, I wanted to make sure we got that exactly right. Blinky Palermo, uh, Frank Blinky Palermo. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, these guys these guys started grooming him as soon as he got out. It's not actually made clear that I could tell at least um exactly where the initial um the initial connection got made for Sonny into the Italian mob. I mean, this oh, this they were- wherever. Wherever that moment is, and whoever's um, largely, I think it's mostly someone connected uh, by the, somebody. It's it's assumed that St. Louis mobster John Vitale um, was the, you know, he he kind of started grooming Sonny in a boxing sense, and um, he had ties to obviously the, the Italian mafia, and there was a connection obviously made it could because he was tied in as well, and. Um, boy what a turning point for his for his whole life i mean the the uh kind of what do they call it a looking glass window or a looking glass moment where you wonder what what his life could have looked like because um, it seems to me that i could tell it seems like somebody listening was a, was a good person under there um, i honestly there's nothing other than his actual actions and like the situation he was put in put in that leads me to believe that he was a bad person um Likewise, there really wasn't any time where he didn't initially try to do like the best thing he could and was some it's a it's a terrible example of sometimes you really are just dealt a bad hand. You could be the champion of the world and just doesn't matter. Sometimes it just the stars don't align. Yeah, it's almost like you get stuck in you get this is this is like, um, you know, this this could Sonny Liston is an example of socio of our social commentary, a socioeconomic 
commentary about the state of poverty and the state of um i mean you could tie it into some of the uh some of the racial um some of the racial barriers that you know somewhat still exist in the world today and especially in the united states today um i mean it, his story is like an example it's a bit of an extreme example you, you might not see a story play out like this today um you know after the civil rights act and the civil rights movement um you know helped along to remove some of those barriers and really you know push good progress that's still being made today and still being worked on today but um back then you gotta imagine that Sonny Liston was probably one of many extremely talented um good individuals who just got caught in the vicious cycle like because there's it's clear that it's a cycle because every turn he's if he's not affiliated here he's going to run into an affiliation over here and those two might be connected and like the the it's hard to escape the associations with with the you know the degenerates of of the underworld we'll call it um when they're just and it's unfortunate because boxing was really infiltrated by a lot of this stuff at the time you know the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s there's quite a bit of fight fixing quite a bit of uh a, you know mafioso um uh, affiliations that went all you know you know the mob was as strong as it had ever been in the 50s especially the italian mafia um and uh it's really unfortunate because you know he he uh he really just like you said it seemed like he made he'd take a step in the right direction or want to but the only there's a wall here and there's a wall here and there's a wall here at every turn and he would always just find himself um kind of and you hate to victimize him, but it's it's true. In my opinion, I think he is in the most literal sense a, a victim of of uh, poor associations more than anything mm -hmm. else. And then um, just think about it like the same way the kids viewed him in school, and uh, the same views as children. Uh, you see him, bad guy, no matter what, big mm -hmm. dude. Oh, he had look at his backstory. He there's no way he can redeem himself. Even if he became champion of the world, no way yeah. he, that man can redeem himself. He was just it's always true. painted as a as a bad guy, as a monster. Yeah. And at some point, uh, uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, Lucky Number uh, Slevin, or no, what is it? Yeah, um, Lucky Number Slevin. You're right. Yeah, he's a uh, he goes. Uh, if someone uh someone calls you a horse, you call him a jerk. If another person calls you a horse, you punch him in the nose. But if a third person calls you a horse. You go get your feedback. Ooh, you only can wow. they can only call you a bad guy so long before you're like, you know what? You're right. I'm the I'm just I'm it's easier. It's easier to agree than to be like, well, right. I know like I look scary and I beat people up and I used to, you know, be involved in the mob, but I'm I'm that's I want to be a good guy now. That's right. it's it's a hard sell, but I not I, only I, that, I, but it's well, it's also it's also just an interesting because I mean you're talking about you're talking about like some of the more subtle, um, some of the more subtle aspects of like poor affiliations or poor influence or poor um, you know associations that can lead to that can lead. I mean th th that's an example of like you know um, you know a more societal a broad conversation about societal subtleties of either racism some in this case in a lot of in a lot of cases or um you know socioeconomic judgment that can 
cross pretty much all racial boundaries regardless because it's Mm -hmm. you know poverty is poverty no matter what race or ethnicity you are um but in this particular case this is the most extreme example because you're talking about you're talking about um career pressure and you know lifestyle pressure from people who are literally threatening threatening your life and they might not come out and say it but you know the italian mafia is suggesting for suggesting Uh, your decision making it's probably a good idea to follow along yeah uh frankie uh carvo uh was arrested 17 times and charged with five five murders including uh believe they think he was responsible for the murder of bugsy siegel in beverly hills really yeah so like this is a bad guy this is a bad guy front to back um and like yeah like the like direct connections like the like italy italian mob like the, the, yeah. like, i feel like a lot of people go like oh like mob and don't like no like this guy was uh born in sicily yeah uh, he's he's just... connected very 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 connected and and you got i think i think they actually um i i didn't read his story because obviously the, you know most of the research is going to be centered on sonny liston but my assumption would be that um you know east coast east coast guy largely probably had some connections to lucky luciano um looks like it's mostly um a lot of it went on in in uh you know philadelphia a lot of the the crimes and some plenty in california too so he made his way all over the country to to apply horrific violent pressure on um on fighters and uh whoever anybody who would uh, dare cross him interestingly enough if you've ever seen you know on the boxing note um the character um, Tommy Como in uh, Raging Bull, um, Tommy is—he's like a mob boss. Was uh, it was based on him in the film Raging okay. Bull? Yeah, so so that's which makes a lot of sense. The character of Jake Lamato. We could possibly do a biography on on Jake Lamato one day, and what an unbelievable story he had too. But um, uh, circling back, we'll we'll try to stay on on task here and just move his uh, move Sonny's life story along. Um, at, it's at this point after he's released and he's starting to get groomed by the mob. Kind of starts um, looking up though. Does absolutely it at does. Least like you know, it could. Boxing is starting to become a thing for him, right? So mm-hmm. he's he's starting to box pretty pretty legitimately. There's a lot of credentialism going on with his boxing career. Um, he's he ends up capturing the Chicago Golden Gloves Tournament of Champions on March 6, 1953 with a massive victory over the 1952 Olympic heavyweight champion, Ed Sanders. Um, He would go on to outpoint Julius Griffin, winner of the New York Golden Gloves Tournament of Champions, and captured the Intercity Golden Gloves Championship on March 26, representing uh, Chicago. This was in 1952. Um, He uh, then competed in 1953 United States National Championships at Boston Garden and passed the preliminary, stopping Lou Graff in the second round on April 13th. Um, he did lose to a 17-year-old on April 15th by the name of Jimmy McCarter, um, who he would actually later employ as his sparring partner, um, interestingly enough. Um, so his amateur career is going pretty well. <clears throat> then, uh, so his am- as his amateur career is kind of coasting along, moving, moving, moving through, he's, he's racking up a lot of, you know, fight experience, which is great. Uh, he finally signs a pro contract um, in September of 1953. Um, 
it's it's a big moment for him, obviously, because he is now a legitimate pro boxer. He can start making pro money. Um, you know, you got to imagine the amateur career. I don't. It's not really said um, what he's exactly doing at this point to earn a living, um, but he's he's still in. Um, I believe he's in Chicago um, at this point still. Um, and he. I heard is, it was uh, implied that he was still kind of just being like some muscle, especially now that he was working so closely with mob guys. They needed yeah. someone just to stand around that, I mean, they know a bad guy. Yeah. Also, yeah. at this time, I believe uh, Rocky Marciano was uh, was rocking up the uh, the title at this uh, at this moment during his in, amateur bouts. In 1953, huh? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, didn't he, uh, I believe he retired around 1955? Yeah, I think that, that timeline sounds about right. Um uh, I know that actually I should I should just for the record uh, correct myself. I, I said Chicago. I meant uh, St. Louis is where he's still at, um, and as his pro career is coming off, you know, getting off the ground floor. Um, and uh, the one note that this part of the story is actually you know it's a very important one because he re- it's revisited throughout the course of his life outside of the ring, and that he is just being harassed regular regularly by. Um, the St. Louis police uh, uh, force. He is, um, he's having run-ins with, um, he's had one run-in after another with the St. Louis police. Uh, I think at one point even it was mentioned that in uh, some of my research that the St. Louis police officers had actually a picture of Sonny Liston on, like on every um, patrol car, on the dashboard um, of every patrol car. It, it, was, it was either there or Philadelphia. You can correct me if I'm wrong um, yeah, actually, yeah, no, after, uh, well, no, the prison boxing, if I'm not mistaken, was in Philadelphia, or was that right after it? No, he hadn't gotten to Philly yet, because he was, he went to the uh, Missouri State Penitentiary, so he was in prison in, in Missouri still. Um, I do know that on top of them having that, or having the pictures of him on their, uh, in the cruisers, uh, he was a, he was a known cop fighter. They were like, this guy will fight us. So right. imagine just having everyone on edge. That so here's the thing. You don't even get a picture nowadays. You just you get a picture in the on the internet for <laughs> half yeah. a week. Like that's there would that right. would Sunday Liston would anything like that would not even have worked nowadays. But also I I would hope that uh wouldn't be so tragic, like you know, like uh, trying to nurture like a talent like that. But um, yeah, he was a known cop fighter. How? What do you do? Uh, wave to an officer? They're just gonna harass you for no reason. Like, well, they were harassing. Time. They were harassing him anyway because he's obviously, uh, you know, abnormally big guy. Um, and you know, he he did have mafia affiliations. So like, I, you wonder what kind of scenes he's in. Uh, you know, it's not to say that he's you know asking for attention from uh, the authorities but um either way even if he was i think that largely he was getting a lot of undue attention um because this is now this is st louis in the 1950s i mean this i believe it's still segregated right i mean it would probably be still oh, a yeah. segregated city um so and you gotta wonder and, and by the way he's also at this point as we're moving along he's now a professional fighter so like He's making pretty good money as a professional fighter. Any professional fighter at this time um, is probably making somewhat decent money. Um, I know that at one point, um, let's jump to 1953 here, September 2nd, when he made his, uh, he made his, he makes his pro debut and he knocks out Don Smith in 33 seconds in the first round. 
I mean, good lord. Like that's about as good as you can get for a debut. It's tough to I mean, I know that it's the 50s in it's heavyweight boxing, but 33 seconds into the first round. I mean, he's 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 making quick work. Um it was there that he campaigned for the first five fights of his career in his sixth bout in Detroit, Michigan. He faced John Summerlin, who was 22-0 at the time, um, and this fight would actually make it to national television, and Liston would take an eight-round decision. So he's now won a professional boxing match um, against an undefeated fighter, a fellow undefeated fighter at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he uh, he won it on TV. So he's really making moves now. So um, moving, moving along a little bit further um, – he actually does get a rematch with Summerlin. I believe it was an immediate rematch. Just take a look at his record here. I believe they go back to back with him. His first pro bout. John Smith. Nope, he actually does. Yep, he beats Summerlin twice. So he gets a unanimous decision in eight rounds on TV in Detroit, Michigan. They go back to the same arena, Motor City Arena, Detroit, Michigan, August 10th this time in 1954. Um, against Johnny Summerlin, and it's actually a split decision victory this time. And then comes uh, the unfortunate um, part of his career, and this is when he actually suffers his first defeat. Um, he gets beat by, uh, what's the fighter's name, Marty Marshall, by split decision. So, you know, it's 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 boxing. Um I, I haven't watched that flight to see exactly what he looked like and what his, um, you know, if he had actually truly lost the fight or if it was, you know, um, controversial in any way. Um, but he does take his first loss. Um, and unfortunately, uh, let's see. It says that um, in the third round of the fight, uh, Marty Marshall, a defensive-minded journeyman, managed to break Liston's jaw with a right hand while Liston was laughing at the smaller man's unorthodox ring tactics. Liston proved his mettle by lasting the scheduled eight rounds despite the intense pain. Um, and I believe he was actually quoted as saying, like, uh, I, my jaw, he hit me with a good one, but my jaw hurts, or my jaw doesn't hurt, but I can't open, but I can't close my mouth. So he was... He knew his jaw was broken, but it wasn't the adrenaline was enough to keep the pain off. Or he's just been whipped his whole life, so he's just like, No, <laughs> my jaw just doesn't work. And broken jaw, oh, it just doesn't seem to function right, just a bit wonky today. Yeah, yeah, that could you hit me in the jaw and I can't open it up. Oh my god, I'm panicking. I'm gonna freak out, right? Of course. I mean, oh, just a tough person this is such a tough 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 man um laughing at the guy <laughs> yeah he, it's only happened because he was taunting because he couldn't contain himself because he was just <laughs> moving around the ring <laughs> <laughs> then he gets his jaw broken then he's like oh, i better he's like i better uh you know better straighten lock up it. yeah no and he lock did it in and he made oh, it i can't open up my mouth i better lock it in broke it i jaw. guess the I guess the pain did intensify throughout the course of the fight. So he, you know, he, he, okay. it was a loss, but he, think about this though. What's funny. He got his jaw broke, right. When in the third round of this fight, right. Third round, he lasts all the, all the remaining five rounds. Split so decision. All round, split decision. That means you want you wouldn't rounds. know that the man broke. <laughs> dude. <laughs> he wants if rounds. a fighter gets their jaw broken in the ring nowadays, if that happens, fight's over. 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 Sure. Oh my God. Like not even I don't I don't 
think you can build someone nowadays with the wherewithal to like broken jaw, just like, hmm, just a little can't open it up so much. Like, uh, and then also, like, you know, you don't have like the ring men to be like, yeah, that's we got it. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, nowadays <laughs> yeah. they go, oh, coach, I can't open my jaw. Oh, just get back in there. You'll be fine. Like a mob boss. He's like, yeah, I don't care. You can, can you oh, this definitely get was. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it, it, it is, this is definitely the point of his career where he's, he's still being groomed by the Italian mafia. They're, they're, you know, largely involved in his fight booking. Um, he's, you know, he's not a, this isn't a man who's, you know, he's fighting, but he was quoted as saying when he started his professional career and signed his first contract, he was quoted as quoted as saying, um, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. And that was basically that may as well have been, I believe that was a you know a media member that he had said that to, but he might as well have been speaking to the Italian mafia themselves because almost I the think, man's mantra. Right. That's that's what he's living by. Because he this is this is you know gotta be somewhat like almost therapeutic for him to be able to fight in these um in this way and to to march to Yo, go, and, to march towards a title, you know. And the craziest thing. This is a man without formal boxing training, realistically, until like this point. Yeah, true. Yeah. Like outside of just a prison boxing system where they're just like get in there and like kill each other. It's true. Like yeah, he's his his life is his life is like one challenge and barricade after another, but like boxing is like a haven for him. It was a just uh, imagine uh, just a just a born genius in the sweet science truly truly no it's it's and it shows in his career you know um but unfortunately um you know as as brilliant as he was you know inside the ring um problems did arise outside of the ring um in 50, in 1955 april 21st he did re- he did avenge that um loss to marty marshall um in uh in the rematch and he dropped him four times uh on route to a sixth round knockout um and they would go have a trilogy fight um enlisted and won the trilogy fight so he he not only avenged it he won the trilogy um so that 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 part of his professional career ends however um he would find himself on the wrong side of the law again uh very unfortunately um he uh his affiliation with, um, you know, the labor racketeering that was going on with the Italian mafia led the police to stopping him on site. He began to avoid main streets. And um, on May 5th, 1956, a policeman confronted Liston and a friend about a cab parked near Liston's home. Liston assaulted the officer, breaking his knee and gashing his face. Oh, my. Um, he also took his gun. Uh, and, he claimed, and he claimed that the officer had been using racial slurs against him. Um, Probably was. was yeah, and, and you think it probably in St. Louis. Um, well, a, it gets it gets a little more interesting. Um, a widely publicized account of Liston resisting arrest, even after night six were allegedly broken over his skull, added to the public perception of him as a nightmarish monster impervious to physical punishment. He was paroled after six <laughs> after serving six months of a nine month sentence and was not prohibited from boxing during 1957. Um, after repeated overnight det- detention by the St. Louis police and a thinly veiled threat to his life. Listen, left St. Louis for Philadelphia. So he had just about enough. And could you blame him? I mean, at this the point, cops he thought have... he was the boogeyman. Yeah. So they're basically just paying attention to everything he did. Um, well, he was quoted. There's a beautiful quote I heard um, him say that I thought was uh, so apropos of probably a lot of, you know, alpha male African Americans at the time. 
He said, I'd go to the store to buy a stick of gum and they thought it was a stick up. <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, I think that's probably a good, you know, a good analogy of what he probably went through pretty regularly, you know, and, you know, he, his story is so like this in this way. Um, and I don't mean to be like unsympathetic to him, but like he had a perfect marriage of being at the wrong place at the wrong time because of two things, poor luck and like being the, you know, product and victim of, you know, a racially segregated United Midwestern United States. Right. So like mm-hmm. all of those barriers and also just really poor probably avoidable decision-making, right? Like there's certain, there's certain things that, you know, man, like if you could have found the, if you could have found what the right thing to do would be here. Cause like at the same time, you think to yourself, the police were probably watching anyone who had affiliations with the Italian mafia. They're probably watching them all, but this yeah, but if the mob tells you to jump. Exactly. He's like a prisoner in this way. And it's like, it, it's almost, I, I don't mean to excuse, um, I'm not trying to to remove his victim his victim status of this of this you know of the situation he's in because um, I do think that's what it is. I mean he is he is he's he has no he has nowhere to turn right like exactly. at this point specifically at this point there's no out because you're once you're in with the mob you're done. There's no there's no other decision making to be to be uh, to undergo. Um, but I do just I do think that like while i i assumed that there was racial profiling and and racist violent behavior from the police force in st louis against him including up to and including harassment and probably assault um i do i do think that that probably was due to a his race and b also his poor affiliations right yeah um i think he kind of gets wise to that too as he starts winning more and more of these fights just to be let down at a you know every corner like at the at the next one uh too um how um uh what what fight were you talking about uh right before oh right um so basically he he went on a a stretch where he had a basically a trilogy um against um at that point it was it was kind of there were fights in between but he had uh, you know plenty of fights in between actually so he suffered his first career defeat in uh september on september 7th 1954 to marty marshall um Mm -hmm. and then uh got the uh he wins by points against neil welch um you know a handful of months later he avenges it in april on april 21st 1955 then he strings off one two three four um, victories all by TKO and then goes in there against Marty Marshall for a third time and gets a unanimous decision on March 6, 1956, Pittsburgh Gardens, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and it's now at that point. Um, so it was only short, it looks like it was probably shortly after that, that um, he is uh, ready to leave Philadelphia like, or ready to leave for Philadelphia. He wants to get out of St. Louis. There's just, he's had too many run-ins with the law. And I think he's ready. And he's also, I think, at this point, probably ready to start chasing, um, you know, championship. Right on the title shot. Yeah, he's going to be starting moving towards the title. So uh, we'll move into 1958. Um, so I think he's, you know, he he gets, he's still in a bit of trouble after, you know, um, this incident with the uh, the officer. Um, he, he wasn't allowed to box in 1957 because of that incident with the police officer. 
Um, so the next year in 1958, he comes back. And this is like, this is, see, this is stuff that you can't, you don't get to revisit now because it just doesn't happen anymore. Um, but in 1958, he comes back, he takes 19, um, he wins that fight in 1956. He can't fight in 1957 due to the, the you know, obviously the criminal um, conduct policy that they had in place at the time. He comes back in 1958 and he strings off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight wins in a calendar year. That is absurd. That's absurd even for that time. To fight eight times yeah. in a year and to win them all. So now he's put himself, um, we're now uh, at the end of 1958, November. I mean, he basically, he fought like almost once a month at that point from January to November. Um, and so now we're at November 18th, 1958, and he is now racked up uh, a 15 fight win streak. And out of, out of those uh, eight fights, six of them were knockouts. If I'm not yeah. So he's getting, yeah. So the power is, the power is being realized by uh, the heavyweight division across the country. A lot of them in Chicago, still in the mid, still fighting in the Midwest, but I think he's, he's starting to, um, his eyes are, 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 he's in Philadelphia. I think that's where he's, you know, that's where he's training. That's where he's living. Um, so this is a big moment where he sh he's rattling off a ton of victories and um, it's, it's an important period. Um, and uh, as he wins all these fights, um, he gets a new manager, uh, Pepperone, who was a front man for the mobsters, Frank Carbo and Blakey Palermo. In 1959, uh, it was a banner one for Liston and he knocked out contender uh, Mike Dijon in six rounds. Um, and uh, I mean, at this point, he's just, he continues to ramble off victories. So we're going to move into um, where he goes from here, which is pretty clear. He is, he is poised for a, a title shot here. And I think this is at the point in which he starts calling for one. Um, he's having trouble getting fights. I think at this point too, I think that um, people are scared at this point. Well, I read that he was actually taking a lot of pay cuts um, to, to actually get these fights. So they would refuse him the title shot um, all the way up until, I think, at the one point when Floyd Patterson, um, who was the heavyweight champ at the time, was starting to become interested in actually fighting him. Um, John F. Kennedy, who was president at the time, yeah, uh, publicly he stated asked him to do it. No, he told him not to. He says, don't, he, he didn't want him to, to fight. Um, he actually insisted that he didn't fight. Um, Sonny Liston. Um, at first, at least, right? Because he does. I guess he he said that, um, publicly. But I guess he talked to uh Floyd Patterson privately, and he's like a. Once like the fight was like confirmed, he talked to him again, and he's like, "Just beat him." He's yeah. like, "Just beat him. Prove that you are the prim and proper black modern black man that can overcome." the beast that is Sonny Liston. Well, in, in like all just... fairness to JFK, you know, and JFK was a, a very flawed individual for a lot of you know other reasons. I think that the goal, what he, what he didn't want was because Sonny Liston had such affiliations with the Italian mafia that he didn't, he wanted to avoid having a heavyweight champion who could, who could have potentially been corrupted by the mob. Right. Which does, which is fair in some capacity, but you know, Floyd Patterson was was a good champion and 
you know, a great fighter, not an all-time great though. If you look at his overall career, um, great person though. Oh yeah, and they were and they were great competitors, charismatic. They they both got along great even after the fights, and we'll we'll get into that heavyweight title fight here in just a minute. Um, so uh, at this point now, right before the title fight, he's having trouble getting fights. He's taking pay cuts just to stay active. We're at a fifteen fight winning streak, um, and then he goes in and fights. Um, we're now up to a 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26 fights in a row he had to win um, to get this title shot. Um, and it, all along the way, like I said, he's taking pay cuts. He's, he's going all over the country. He's fighting in Seattle. He's fighting in Denver. He's fighting in Houston. He's fighting in Florida. He's fighting in Cleveland. And he's taking pay cuts. Um in fact, he's getting paid less than his opponents, even though it's at that point, it's you know, he's he's inevitable. He's truly inevitable. Um, and it's it's quite a it's quite a run he's on. He's marching towards that title, and he finally um he's finally gonna get it. And um he's gonna get it against Floyd Patterson, and we're gonna get into that fight here in just a minute. But we're gonna take a quick break uh before we get into Sonny Liston um at the peak of his career, um athletically and competitively. Um, and we'll be right, right back to talk about that here after the break, and, and we'll be back in just a minute. talk about Sonny Liston in a heavyweight title bout a unbelievable mark um of the uh of a career that was you know quite impressive I mean just to rattle off in a matter of you know a handful of years to to win basically 26 in a row um to get to this point um his career record at the time when he gets there he's 33 and one he he gets a fight against Albert Westfall, um, and this is in Philly. And I mean, he puts a stamp on it too to get this title fight. He knocks him out in the first round, um, at minute one fifty eight. I mean, just unbelievable. Oh, that's oof. oh, just actually, no, yeah, I was watching one of those highlights. He's a absolute animal, like you're saying. Just stands there, just a true brawler, true willing brawler. to. 
willing to throw out more than he knows that his opponent can dish out. And it's sure. it's scary. He's the he is he's just a he's a hulk of a man. Like that's a and there's there's no amount of boxing that you can teach that can really defend anything like that. At least up up until this point. It's a you're you're pretty much at his whim. You gotta do I mean, it's it, it's scary stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and his and his his power really was translating at this point in his career, and it, it really did through most of his career. But man, he this was this was big. So he does book the title fight. Uh, Patterson finally signed to meet listing for the world title, and this was going to be uh, September twenty fifth, nineteen sixty two, in Comiskey Park, um, in Chicago. Um, leading up to the fight, listing was an eight to five betting favorite, although many picked Patterson to win. So it looks like the odds are pretty pretty close, somewhat. Um, but he's definitely a favorite. Um, and he just goes in there iconically and in unbelievable fashion, knocks Patterson out at the two minute and six second uh, mark of the first round, putting him down for the count with a with that monster left hook. It's that left hook throughout his whole career. We should have mentioned this earlier. It's the left hook that does the damage for him. Um, I mean, he had been knocking guys. It was mentioned that in prison he was knocking guys out with the jab. Oh yeah, the they're saying his his jab was powerful enough to you know put right. you on the ground. A piston, a true piston, and the left hook was 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 more developed, um, and he used later in his career for a lot of knockouts. And that um, that left hook to the jaw put Patterson to the canvas um, at the two minute six second mark of the first round. So in, in emphatic I'll, fashion, he is now the heavyweight champion of the world. And um, I'll, I'll tell you what, even at the start of that fight during the stare down, Floyd Patterson doesn't look up, man. <laughs> he does not nope. look up at that man. No. He's eyes flushed to the mat. Sonny Liston looking at him as, as any, as he would anyone else. He's, not scared of anyone, but I've not. Well, I've he not just seen looks any... enormous. He just looks yeah. enormous too. Like, uh, and Floyd Patterson was it? You know, he's he was definitely a smaller heavyweight. It, it appears to me, um, but Sonny just looks. He's just he looks fuller. He looks faster, um, and clearly more powerful. And um, you know, there's a lot of clinch work that goes on throughout the fight. Um, and, you know, for as long as it lasted, um, the. You know the jab. The jab, I think, was doing the the preliminary damage, and clearly it was Sonny who wanted to engage, um, not so much in the clinch. He was he was the one doing a lot of the clinch breaking. Um, oh and... yeah. Um, I guess uh, Floyd Patterson's whole his, his whole game plan was to get in as close as he can, uh, work the body a little bit. You know, typical, easy to coach, hard to do when you're dealing with, of course, the baddest person on the planet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? basically. All you got to do is get in close, whereas 76 inch reach doesn't mean nothing yeah and he can't get those sledgehammers on you 84 inch 84 oh, inches yeah, think sorry. about that Jeez. 76 for a six foot one guy 76 would be not bad but um it's clear that as the first round goes on that like it's just a matter of time he's landing the bigger shots and he wobbles him up against the ropes he's gotta hurt and he drops him with a left hook from hell and just and this is the champion yeah, that's the champion of the world at the time. He is now officially the heavyweight champion of the world. Um, and he defeats Floyd Patterson in emphatic fashion. So just an incredible feat. Um, and unfortunately, you know, and this is the part that really just, it, it, 
a big, big marker of what um, I personally think changed um, Sonny Liston for the rest of his life was what happened after he became um, after he became champion. And what um, it's crazy because nothing happened. Exactly. Exactly right. Absolutely um, nothing happened. It was the he figured, all right, I had the this really rough life, overcame adversity or adversity. What what else uh you know, what else do I deserve? Maybe a welcome well, home. Thank yeah, you. And he, and he just couldn't get it. Um so upon winning the world heavyweight title, Liston had a speech prepared for the crowd that friends assured him would meet him at the Philadelphia airport. But upon arrival, Liston was met by only a handful of reporters and public relations staff. So literally only people who were paid to be there. Uh, no friends, no citizens of Philadelphia, no, no celebration. Um, can you imagine what the man had been through? Like the triumphant feeling that winning a world championship in probably, the, if not, maybe at that time, probably baseball would have been num- your number one American sport. Boxing a very close second, right? So like and in, in spectacular fashion, unbelievable fashion, yeah, truly, like truly an American feat, like like a a moment in American sports that doesn't get enough, um, it doesn't get enough credit or or focus because I think what he overcame to get to that point was just so it was so treacherous and um, I don't know, just to wash a guy like like Floyd Patterson, who's the heavyweight champion, just to put him out on the canvas violently and viciously in that way, and then and then to just be completely deflated um, by a lack of support from Philadelphia. I know he wasn't from Philadelphia, but I mean, he was publicly there, and I guess you know, I guess his relationship with the people of Philadelphia wasn't great um, leading into the fight, but you got to imagine that's still got to be your guy. And it is a racially segregated country at the time. I, I understand that, but um, it was terrible. And it was quoted by writer Jack McKinney. He said that um, I watched Sonny, uh, quote, I watched Sonny. His eyes <clears throat> swept the whole scene. You could feel the, the deflation, see the look of hurt in his eyes. He had been deliberately snubbed. Philadelphia wanted nothing to do with him, end quote, which is, I think this changed him. I think, I personally think this is like a moment in which he. Um, it's, it clicked. It's the, that's the third time he was called a, called a horse. Yeah. Right. That You're, you're exactly right. I think it's, that analogy co- comes into play really beautifully here in this moment um, in his life. Um, if that, if that can't do it, absolutely nothing can. Yeah. Yeah, because you get you get fighters and you get um, champions even now who you wonder, you know, once they <clears throat> what is it? Uh, we'll, we'll bring up the I believe it was Marvin Hagler who said this quote. It's like uh, there's like the opposite problem sometimes. It's like it's hard to get up and it's hard to get up at four in the morning and go go running and get out of bed when you're um, when you're when you're in silk pajamas, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's a problem. He never even got to that. He never even got to no. experience that. Like he got, he got the heavyweight title, and all he wanted was the embrace of. And you could, you could see this throughout his life. This is what he wanted was the embrace. He he was never, people. he was never granted the grace of first world problems. Exactly true, true. Yeah, he was. He could not be integrated, um, even the, even in a country that was going through a civil rights movement that was, you know, changing the views on. Inter on um, 
you know, on racial issues. Um, and, you know, black fig public figures were being embraced by, you know, a, a swath of the country. And he was unfortunately excluded. Um, and I, I think that's, I think that's where things changed in his, his demeanor and your analogy, your horse analogy is, um, it's quite, um, uh, apropos in this uh at this point in the story um <clears throat> he uh he continues anyways um his run-ins with the police had continued in philadelphia he particularly resented a 1961 arrest by a black patrol uh patrolman for loitering claiming to have merely been signing autographs and chatting with fans outside a drugstore a month later liston was accused of impersonating a police officer by using a denver um, by using, a, I'm sorry, a flashlight to wave down a female motorist in Fairmont Park, although all charges were later dropped. Subsequently, Liston spent some months in, in Denver where a Catholic priest who acted as a spiritual advisor attempted to help bring his drinking under control. After he won the title, Liston relocated to Denver permanently, saying, I'd rather be a lamppost in Denver than the mayor of Philadelphia. Powerful mm. stuff. Powerful, yep. powerful, powerful stuff. Um, so he he'd had about enough and it's it's really um you know it is it is american racism at, in a lot of ways um at that time that was that was driving a lot of this it was pretty and pretty you know that just goes to show if you can't beat the system by literally being the world champion what's your hope of just being an average citizen man right it's just you, it's if helpless you, if you can't do it like that then you can't do it man right you just can't you can't you can't be in a more advantageous position as a as a black man in the country. And it, media, you got to remember, you know, you got to remember. Campania is a hero, at least anti-hero. Well, not only that, but it's also important to remember. You know, heavyweight champion of the world. Um, you know, I don't know what kind of flashy behavior he exhibited. There's not really anything to indicate that he was that type of individual. But I do think at towards the later part of his career, he was you know, powwowing with like Sammy Davis Jr. And um, you just wonder, you wonder what, I'm sure, I'm sure at some point in a lot of these stories, you know, um, Sonny was at fault for some kind of criminal behavior that he shouldn't have been doing. Um, but it's it's hard. It's also impossible. It's not hard. It's impossible to believe that every interaction with a police officer um, in his adult life was brought on by himself. That's impossible. Um, right, and I, I I don't believe that one one iota. I think he got harassed and he got driven out of town. And I don't think they wanted him as champion. So um, I think the police officer, I think the police force in Philadelphia uh, drove him out of town um, by harassing him to to death. And um, you know some of that was probably brought on by himself, but a lot of it definitely wasn't. Um, so he moves to Denver, and um, seems like things. Um, actually go pretty well for him while he's there he's he gets married somewhere in that in that time frame um i know and he um let me see when he actually got married well he'd actually been married um he was in philadelphia but i think he had just gotten there in 1957 um he actually got married in st louis but i think he was living in philadelphia at the time but um importantly enough he's the heavyweight champ um however there is the of course the famous rematch clause um in the contract so uh floyd patterson and listen agreed obviously to a um to a rematch um and they would meet again uh they agreed to a date of july 22nd 1963 this time um 
uh, I believe also in, in Las Vegas. Where was the first fight? Their first fight was uh, in, oh, that's right, Comiskey Park in Chicago. So this time we're going to go to Las Vegas. Um, he's training in Denver now. Um, so um, closer to the epicenter of where this fight's going to go down. Um, and uh, I think his life's a little different um, at this point um, in Denver. Um, but I do think there was something going on in the background um, of, and that, that actually took place um, during the build of this fight, the, uh, you know, promotional build for, for the first Patterson fight. And I, that is that I think, I think Muhammad Ali started showing up and at this point he was known <clears> as Cassius Clay. So it, we'll refer to him in this moment as Cassius Clay. Um, and I think he starts showing up uh, to see he interacts with Sonny in public quite a bit. And he's, he starts calling him what he calls him the ugly bear. And he's like provoking him pretty regularly. Muhammad Ali called a lot of people ugly though. He called yeah, that I mean, ugly. I mean, he was just a shit talking motherfucker, wasn't he? Well, I mean, what are you gonna do? Beat him up? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, he knew what he had. He knew what he had. Um, but uh I, I don't know if it was the build for this fight or where it was, but uh Cassius was was all over Sonny and he was uh yeah, he would I'm... see him at restaurants and, and I think they they crossed paths in Vegas and they had some altercations that were pretty ugly. Um, is uh as early as a uh, nineteen sixty uh um uh yeah um uh, or Cassius Clay was advising people on how to uh, beat Sunday List and he was yeah. just like just make him lose his temper he can't you know once you make him go all go all out just like you know play your game turn him into a berserker mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's interesting um, make him fight then box him yep yeah so well. That didn't work for Floyd Patterson because uh, no. in 1963, um, at this point on July 22nd in Las Vegas, Patterson, who at this point was a four to one betting underdog, so now he's big time underdog. I mean, he got knocked out in the first round of the first fight, so you got to imagine that's that makes about that makes a lot of sense. Um, Safe bet. Yeah, and uh, he's an underdog. Uh, he gets knocked down three times, and he is counted out at the two minute ten mark of the first round again. And I'll tell I'll tell you what, even more so this fight, it didn't look like Patterson wanted to be there, man. No, 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 no. Yeah, if you watch the uh, if you actually watch the footage, it he it almost appears like he he enacted the rematch clause by obligation. Right, like just you get paid something, but that it, it he looked like he really didn't know if he had anything for him. And then when he showed up to fight, he's like, I I don't know, I can't. I can't like you know get in his head, but it's when you usually you know when you see like a boxing match, two confident individuals ready to, you know, step out in the middle of the ring. If Patterson looked like a defeated man, he looked like he knew the outcome, and it wasn't not in his favor, and it wasn't. No, it really wasn't. It really wasn't. And the the, the berserker thing is actually funny from Cash's play because you do kind of see that in Sonny's fighting styles. He's hyper aggressive, and he yeah. it. He wants to apply pressure, and you just see a lot of that. You, that he wants to break clinch quite a bit again in this. You know, this I bout. after watching the fights, uh, there's almost some parallels in the Liston Patterson compared to the list or or Liston uh, Clay. Uh, yeah, a little bit. You could definitely see there's some 
they're uh, both it's and it's almost it's a perfect baton pass of eras from uh in in the in the solid chain link in the fence being Sonny Liston. You have the before era where Sonny Liston comes in and absolutely just dominates, steamrolls almost everyone through there. And if he if they did beat him, he came back and he beat them. Um, and then you have Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, the arguable greatest athlete of all time. Um, that's it's so it's like so polarizing for hit for Sonny Liston to come in and beat the champion in such a spectacular fashion, and then in Liston Clay one get beat in such a spectacular fashion. So listen, so listen, that's perfect segue, Errol. It's it's Liston versus Clay, number one. It's the the first of two fights. Um, and this is it gets a little confusing with the damn change, and we'll get into a little bit of that. Um, but Muhammad, but, I'm sorry, uh Cassius Clay at the time is just, I mean, he is just talking wild shit, uh, just just reckless shit to uh Sonny Liston pretty regularly and very publicly. And you can tell that this is starting to become a bit of his persona. Um, I mean, he was quoted as saying, if you want to lose your money, then bet on Sonny. I mean, like this dude is, I mean, he had the gift of gab, like no other. I he mean, pretty much, he almost, uh, so like you said, boxing right behind baseball at the time. Oh my God. Like, a just a skyrocketed the popularity just with the controversy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the controversy. And just the fact, the fact that he was such a brilliant or orator. For sure, yeah. Just sold. Yeah. Uh, he would uh, sell daytime television tickets. All press is good press, too. You know, like that's that's the old adage. I mean, that's that's more, that's how you promote fights. It doesn't matter. It's you know, and it got a little ugly, in my opinion. Um, it always does it, with. So I, I want to love Muhammad Ali, but it a lot of his stuff gets ugly, man. If you if you really look under it, well, I mean, everything gets everything gets ugly when you look under it with a with a fine scope but there's just really some there's some things he does for that i just really wish that i, I don't know like it, it's it's all fights all that fun stuff boxing wouldn't be as popular as it is without that and also maybe he wouldn't be as polarizing as a figure without that but i don't there's some stuff man that just doesn't sit well i mean they, they're punching each other they're calling each other names like you know i can't i can't be mad about that i'm not a I'm not a fighter. I'm not a pugilist. Yeah, but I'm not I, gonna, you know, but I wasn't the one thing I, and that that's all very true. And I, I tend to agree, you know, you, you, at the end of the day, these guys are going to settle it with fists and that's great. Um, but I don't know, like even in hindsight, and I know it was a sensitive time in the country, but um, I believe at one point he referred to the fight as like um, this fight represents um, uh, Islam versus Christianity. And like, for me, that's like a bridge too far. Like, yeah, like what, like why are I we mean, bringing the, in like like it's a it's 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 athletics, you know? I don't know why that has to be a part of the build. Um, and I think and probably like, it's probably would it was probably regretted by Cassius Clay. Um, in hindsight, I wonder. Um, but I, I personally think that stuff gets a little ugly and it's kind of unnecessary. Yeah, like in, in the only um, way I can even play devil's advocate for that is a. Uh, if he was um, trying to like argue like uh, like it's a battle of like faiths, but that is like that's really it. 
like but like to be like this is like a direct demonstration of like you know islam against christianity especially at yeah. that time yeah kind i think of, it was uh, i think it was unnecessary and i think it was well it's just like and i mean just look at who your opponent is is your opponent espousing like First of all, is your is your opponent doing anything to espouse anything? I was going to say there's almost nothing we talked about that was uh, okayed in the Bible. No, Sonny's <laughs> life done. Right, Sonny Sonny Liston is not walking around, um, you know, living by the word of of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's, he's been doing, he's doing what he's got to do. Yeah, exactly. Perfect word for it. Perfect, perfect description. Um, but anyway, so so the fight. Um, the fight start. The fight build begins. Um, Cassius Clay. Um, he's. I mean, he's the gift of gab is is quite remarkable. Um, and I'm not going to recite his like unbelievable poetry. And you know, I I could never do it the justice that it's deserved. But feel free to look up um, any of his interviews he did leading up to this fight. Great build to a, another heavyweight championship fight and um, a pretty incredible um, fight it was. Um, so uh, let's let's dive into the fight, Arrow. Let's dive into uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to take a quick, short, uh, another court, really short break um, before we dive into Liston versus Clay number one, and we'll be right back. It's a big fight. This is a big fight in the history of the sport. It's an important fight for a lot of reasons. It's culturally significant. It's not a. Um, it's not just a fight. It had a it had its own. Um, really took on a life of its own after the fact for a lot of controversial reasons and quite unfortunate ones um, in a lot of ways. Um, so, the first fight is quite um, quite an undertaking. It's it was. Um, they weighed in pretty close, um, but I think I think actually Sonny weighed in, you know, about eight or nine pounds heavier. Um, and uh, well, Ali was definitely a bit taller. Um, you know, he was a little bit, a little bit, a little bit taller, but a little bit lighter. Um, and then when you watch the fight, I mean, you watch these guys going at it. I mean, it's like I don't know what you think, Errol, but Muhammad Ali, or I'm sorry, Cassius Clay at the time, he looks enormous to him. Yeah. He looks enormous. And it's so he he looks he looks big compared to Sonny Liston. And on top of that, it's one of the first times in any of these black and white boxing videos that you see someone running around the ring. Yeah, it's so true. The whole space, making mm-hmm. them approach, making them step back. It was truly that you could tell that this was truly the start of an era, and all that. All the smack talk is reckless and wild as it is from Muhammad Ali. 
he was absolutely ready to back it up. Oh yeah. I mean, he, this is like the definition of the squared circle because he's, I mean, he is literally evading and super defensive, but like when he throws, he throws hard. I mean, this is where you really see Muhammad Ali uh, slash Cassius Clay at the time, just like dropping his hands. He's, he's Anderson Silva, right? Like he looks like Anderson yeah, Silva. Exactly. Prime, like unbelievable head movement just cannot be touched. Can't hit what you can't see. And the, uh, the confidence, this is the, the strongest person or this, the strongest punching person in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. And then just weaving, weaving the punches by, by inches, centimeters, just and dropping his hands. His hands are at his waist the whole fight. Yes, unless he's throwing. He was, like he, yeah. His and, only, his only has his guard. His guard is only up when he is trying. When he knows count a counter punches. Exactly. He'll he'll parry. A co- he like parries a couple. Like puts his hands up like to his chest a little bit. Hands at his hands at his hips, holstered. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's an unbelievable performance. And Sonny. Um, Sonny gets Who? Sonny gets carved up. I mean, let's. let's what can you do? How can you answer that? This is Sonny Liston. The his his whole his whole backstory and the sole the the sole reason he's so great at fighting is simply because he's the literal baddest man on the planet at that time. Yeah, right. There's not one person who is just going to like. It, it's a, probably like a bad analogy, but uh, I play a lot of video games. He reminds me of like a of a like a fallout video game character who just has you're just born with 10 strength just 10 strength that's yeah. one of your things if you hit someone like you're just just absolutely built different conform um, right you could you could put him to the canvas with the right shot you, but you have to only, land the right shot exactly and like the the only person like what it would take to beat a man like this is literal greatness and like that greatness True. in Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. happened to be happened to be Cassius Clay at that time. So true. And, and the main the main difference is uh he was a uh, Muhammad Ali, or sorry Cassius Clay at the time studied pugilist, grew up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, Sonny Liston grew up in the fields and in prison, and right. you know it, and was bossed around by the mob. Well, it's interesting. He be- learned was by just uh, by. Uh, by practice yeah and then nobody knew it at the time but it really was nobody knew it because Sonny Liston was heavyweight champion and for which is reason a and reason b is that um nobody knew it at the time uh, because Muhammad Ali was Cassius Clay 19 and 0 boxer at the time um but it really was a David versus Goliath moment I mean but they just did we just didn't know it or we know it now, but they didn't know it then. We it um, was ex- it might have been exactly reversed. What do you mean? It might have been like I don't like because you know after it, like if you're a serious, uh, I mean I don't. If you, I mean I I imagine like being a. Uh, no, there's probably some people who knew that uh, Muhammad Ali was uh, just like the actual up and coming like talent, but if you read those stats, the champion, nothing but knockouts. Crush Floyd Patterson, that's a once in a lifetime talent. Is the next person who's going to be the greatest fighter of all time just going to walk in? He no, that's what I mean, to. though. That's exactly he what I mean. Yeah. I think that, well, because he was a betting underdog, I think that Cassius Clay was Goliath and they just didn't know it. And Cat and Sonny Liston, the farmer, the, you know, the not, not the technical prowess uh, holder in the fight, the, the, bra- the brawler. 
with no education, but fought, learned to fight in prison was he was David. He was David. And absolutely. Uh, and, but it was just not perceived that way because the career hadn't unfolded for Cassius Clay quite yet that it inevitably became. And then, um, of course, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali uh, would phrase that as him beating Goliath mm-hmm. when, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, but right. that's, uh, uh, but that's my, at the time, man, at the time, I'll give it to him. That's the baddest man on the planet. I will, uh, uh, it's a lot easier for me to talk candidly about Muhammad Ali because uh, he can't beat me up anymore. So, yeah, he's he's unfortunately no longer with us. So. <laughs> yes, so um, that is about the only reason I feel comfortable talking about almost. Uh, you'll notice I was pretty silent in the beginning talking about boxers, except for uh, you know, uh, Errol Spence Jr. Shout out, shout out, but, uh... shout out, big big <laughs> fighter, big fight going. Um. So I did want to mention, though, in this fight, there was a little bit of controversy um, because there was uh, Cassius Clay was winning the fight. He was very clearly winning the fight, although, you know, there were, you know, Liston had his moments where he would he would shove his forehead into Cassius's into his chest and start and just let off like a five punch combination. But he could he could just not pin down uh, where Cassius Clay was going to be to land that big shot. And there was a little bit of controversy. Um, at one point, uh, Liston rallied at the end of the round, uh, in the, this would be the third, um, as Clay seemed to, seemed to to tire a bit and he delivered some punishing shots to Clay's body. It was probably Liston's best moment in the entire fight, but as the round ended, Clay shouted to him, you big sucker, I got you now. Sitting on his stool between rounds, Liston was breathing heavily as his cornermen worked on his cut. During the fourth round, Clay coasted, keeping his distance, and Liston appeared dominant. Joe Lewis, commenting on TV on TV at ringside, said, It's looking good for Sonny Liston. However, when Clay returned to his corner, he started complaining that there was something burning in his eyes, and he could not see. I didn't know what the heck was going on. Angelo Dundee, Clay's trainer, recalled on an NBC special 25 years later. He said, Cut the gloves off. I want to prove to the world there's dirty work afoot. And I said, Whoa, whoa, back up, baby. Come on now. This is for the title. This is the Big Apple. What are you doing? Sit down. So I get him down, I get the sponge, and I pour the water into his eyes, trying to cleanse whatever's there. But before I did that, I put my pinky in his eye, and I put, put it into my eye, and it burned like hell. There was something caustic in both eyes. Uh, the commotion wasn't lost on referee Barney Felix, who, who was walking towards Clay's corner. Felix said Clay was seconds from being disqualified. The challenger, his arms held high in surrender, was demanding that the fight be stopped, and Dundee, fearing the fight, might indeed be halted, gave his charge a one-word order, run. So, um, so never really confirmed, but it was, um, but Cassius Clay did claim that uh, there was a, some kind of a, of a coating or something on um, Sonny's gloves. I think that's bullshit to me. Um, I don't know that I believe that. Um, I think that, I just don't. I just don't see that being a, a tactic. I mean, Sonny Liston what, what was a, perfect mafioso tactic. Just poison your gloves, Sonny. You can get them. <laughs> Punch them in the eyes with the poison gloves. Take yeah, I mean, the fifth. He's a, he. I know he's nineteen and old, but like, I mean, Cassius Clay wasn't Cassius Clay. You got to think Sonny Liston probably thought he was going to win this fight. Right? <laughs> it was probably I like mean, just the first time, like he had like sweat and blood in his eyes. He's like, it stings. Yeah, and at that point the the fight was kind of starting to go the other way, um, but Cassius Clay clears his eyes and he starts taking the fight back over, um, and uh, 
Then what happens is, as the bell sounded for the seventh round, Clay was the first to notice that Liston had spat out his mouth guard. Clay moved in the middle of the ring with his arms raised, dancing the jig that would become known as the Ali Shuffle, while Howard Cosell, broadcasting at ringside, shouted, Wait a minute, wait a minute, Sonny Liston is not coming out. Liston failed to answer the bell for the seventh round, and Clay was declared the winner by technical knockout. Liston became the first world champion since Jess Willard in 1919 to retire on his stool during a heavyweight title flight. At that point, the bout was level on the official scorecards of the referee and two judges. So he quit on the stool, Errol. What do you think? What do you think about I think that? that's a man. That's a man who was pushed to the absolute limit of of what a person can take. Um, yeah. If he did have the wherewithal to reach in there and you know get that magic uh, left hook in and just you know shovel him down as. Any anything can happen in boxing. You get hit one time by the strongest person in the world at the moment, you're going to sleep. Like, you know, you're getting rocked. Um, at that moment, what's the point? He won the championship before. No one met him when he uh, made it to Philadelphia. And now he's facing like true adversity. Someone who was, you know, talking all this shit. For some reason, he's loved and adored. He has all this backing. What's the point? Give it to him. It, what what are at that point? What are we really fighting for? And that almost leads directly into the second fight. Yeah, we're gonna get into the second fight. Um, that's a big uh it's a big it's a big one. I mean it's a big fight. I guess we're before we move on from that though, I do there was talk of a shoulder injury from uh Liston, but I don't wanna even die. I don't wanna speculate on that, but I do want to talk a little bit about um there were allegations that the fight was fixed. We don't have to go into the dirty details of all that. I mean, I'll just say this. I don't I wouldn't pay it any credence personally because I just don't see any incentive for Sonny to um there's just no incentive for You don't you don't see Sonny Liston boxing any different than he does in the other fights. He just doesn't have any answers for him. He's it's a new style, it's a different style of fighter. Um and Cassius just looks faster and better. By the way, what is the Italian mafia gain from uh losing from, from Cassius Clay being champion? It's just, it just doesn't make sense. Um, the more you listen and read about it, um, it just there wasn't a ton of evidence for it either. Um, I mean, there were some, you know, there was some things here and there that were said. Um, we're, we're not going to dive into those details, honestly, because I just personally think that the I think it's mostly speculative and there just wasn't any evidence to su- support any kind of fixed claim um, in the first fight. Specifically, the first fight. We'll talk oh, about. The thank you fight. for yeah. Like in the in the first. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll spe- I will um I will specify the first fight um because we're gonna get into the second fight. So um, I wholeheartedly agree with that statement though. The first fight, I believe yeah. that was a, a no true effort. Yeah, but you're no facing fix. just the greatest. Just got beat. Greatest talent of uh almost any generation. Yeah, truly an all time great. So let's dive into the fight. Uh, fight number two. Um. So it got scheduled. Um, it actually got scheduled to take place um, once before the actual date. Um, so they they did want to do it. I don't know if it was a clause, if it was actually in the a contractual clause um, for them to do a rematch. Um, but the rematch was it was going to happen, and it was there was public um, demand for it. Thankfully, um, and in between fights, uh, Cassius Clay does change his name to Muhammad Ali or Muhammad Ali. And, and specifically um, has a lot of, uh, at this point, 
developed a lot of ties to the nation of Islam and, and was spending a lot of time in the civil rights. Uh, I believe at this time, even um, the, the uh, civil rights act had been passed, I believe, um, but there was still obviously a civil rights movement going on. And Malcolm X was deeply involved in that. And um, he was, uh, uh, held a lot of affiliations um, with uh, Muhammad Ali at the time. Um, I believe, if if I'm not mistaken, this would have been 1965 that the flight actually took place, but it was scheduled once before that. It was set for November 6th, uh, yes, right here, uh, set for November 16th, 1964 at the Boston Garden. So it was going to go down in Boston, right? Um, but a week before the flight, on Friday the 13th, um, Ali needed emergency surgery for a strangulated hernia. Um, so they would delay the bowel. Um, and according to uh, the research that I kind of um, listened to, and I'll, I'll, I'll actually supply some links to a couple of podcasts I, I did, I went through. Um, it sounded like Sonny Liston was having the camp of a lifetime leading up to that original date. And it seemed as though um, he was as confident and as focused as, as his, uh, as his team had ever seen him on winning back that title. And um you know, I, I personally think that fight, you know, fighter for fighter, I just don't see, I don't see a path to victory for Sonny Liston against uh, Muhammad Ali. What do you think? Uh, oh, see, other than um, the uh, tried and true uh, boxer's chance, absolutely not. Like a puncher's chance, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, like exactly. like a knockout. like, a, like anyone, a... anyone can just get hit and hit the girl. Well, not like anyone, but at, at that stage, you were dealing with a, we're dealing with a lot of force. So, but... Yeah. It, there was really no chance that it was even even close. But also, we're here's the thing that gives a gives a little uh, or fires the flames of like the dive. We're talking about the man. He, he got his jaw broke and fought, you know, three other matches. And here's the thing: Sonny Liston gets punched by Muhammad Ali in that fight. He right. gets he gets hit he gets hit. It doesn't it doesn't look like it's like a strong punch. You're referring it, to the to the what is known as the the phantom punch, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So we're, we'll get right into that because it looks like so the fight the way the fight unfolds. Let me unpack the fight quickly and we'll go right we'll go right into mm-hmm. the the phantom slash anchor punch. Um, so yeah, they 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 circle a new date, May twenty fifth. This time they're going to do it in Lewiston, Maine, which I I don't even understand for a second why they went to this small. Um, I mean, it's such a such a crazy. It's a it's like the one of the most important fights in the history of boxing, and they're doing it in a. Oh yeah. Well, oh, Lewiston, Maine. Good good for them. Um, and at this point, uh, like you're saying, um, uh, Cassius Clay changes his name to Muhammad Ali. He's a uh, picking up even more speed um you know as far mm-hmm. as uh media right yeah i mean it's 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 um it's an important time for both fighters um uh and a, a pivotal moment for re- really both of them for sure you could definitely say for both of them definitely more so sunny listing though right yeah so the fight unfolds um and uh, it it's, it goes the way of Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is victorious. 
um, in what is a extremely controversial second fight. In the second fight, um, and it's so funny because, like, I mean, anyone who's anyone who has seen the footage of the second fight, um, it's tough to find good footage. But um, in the first round, um, Muhammad Ali lands a shot. Whether or not he whether or not he actually knocks him out cold is up for debate. It's called the phantom punch specifically because it appears as though Sonny Liston doesn't, doesn't get hit. Um, and immediately the crowd and the teams, it's, it's tough to see. And it's, it's, it looks like Ali hits him. I mean, he definitely hits at the, at the very least, it looks like a very like nonchalant, like kind of typical, just boxing punch, something that you see people take all the time. Right. But just the way that, um, I mean, you can slow it down over and over. You can slow it down over and over, but Sonny, Sonny goes down and he goes down in, in this emphatic way that has never been seen before um, from him. Arms um, out. Arms out on his back. And then he tries to get up and falls back down. And of course it's important to remember too. And, and you never know this until you go into the, you know, the stories of these incredible fights, but Muhammad Ali, the, the, it's probably the most most famous picture of Muhammad Ali, right? The one, yeah, the one where he's, he's standing, standing over, over him. him. It's, yeah. Which is so crazy because I don't think I, w- I would have ever known that that was I didn't potentially know, over I didn't know that that fight. was the picture in, until, yeah, I started looking into this. And that's cr- Sonny Liston. He's just Sonny standing Liston. over him. Like, and he's just like, and, he has his hand on his chest. He's just like, I'm the baddest person. Hold on, I, I want to see. I want to credit the uh, photographer who, who got this. Um, let me see. Uh, it's probably at its own page. Um, this is the Sunny Liston photo in Liston, Maine, and it was captured by who we got. He told him, uh, he yelled, and he's yelling at him. He says, Get up and fight, sucker. And um, <laughs> he, he didn't, he did not. Um, it's an amazing photo. I mean, it's one of the, it's if you don't if you go through like the history of American sports, you could, you would be well within your rights to put that the number one, most iconic sports photograph. Right. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Just so, so famous. And to think, and this is what we'll get into now. um, I think he took a dive. Um, And he he all, he, he all but admits it later in life. Um, Yeah, I do. And whether or not he hit him, they call it the phantom punch. I think it's irrelevant. I think it's irrelevant. Um, yes, I, I think he, so. I think he was. Um, I think he would. They told him to dive sometime at that point. It's almost impossible to ignore with his history and his his previous uh, the uh, the his his previous um, uh, sorry the uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 previous bow. No, the uh, his uh, his old uh, boxing. Uh, Guys, the old uh, mob contractors with Frank or Frankie Carbo. Carbo, Frankie Carbo, right, right. Yeah. His affiliations to the mob. His old, his old managers. Like, there's mm-hmm. almost a. It's there's no way to ignore that affiliation. Like, it would just make too much sense, especially if he lost in such spectacular fashion. It is so. While I do want to say it is kind of weird that like he would. Uh, why would he? Why would he train so hard if he's just going to take the fall? Might just be like the last fight, and he's just upset. Just really well, mad. I think I think what happened was is I think the training was going the way that he wanted, where he was confident. 
um, go, leading up to the Boston date, right? And mm -hmm. then, the, and then the emergency hernia happens to Ali, and things shift. And what is, um, you know, they call it the phantom punch because you know it's Ali called it the anchor punch. Um, and Ali doesn't even remember. He says he hit him so fast. Uh, he was he was pretty sure he hit him. He didn't really hit him hard, but he was and um what is and then remember at this point um there and I, I don't think this was mentioned so i'll mention it here it's important to remember that there was negotiations for this for both of these title fights that ali was to prove or i'm sorry not ali that liston was to prove that his affiliations with the mafia were cut that those ties were cut mm -hmm. um so because because of this very thing they were concerned that this very outcome was possible um so they did that um and i don't know that doesn't necessarily exonerate anybody right um and Ooh. it seems as though to me well um and it was mentioned later in sonny's life uh, and we'll get a little bit to this here in a few minutes um sonny does admit in an interview that as muhammad ali's career continued that he complains in an interview that he was owed money for some for ali fights that were going on in the uh, later in the sixties and seventies. Mm -hmm. And the implication there was, was that, that he had agreed to take a dive for a percentage of future purses of Muhammad Ali by um, mafia members. Right. Oh, that Muhammad Ali's team and maybe Ali didn't even know it's possible that he didn't even know that the, that this that all he had to do was try to knock him out and that he was going to hit Liston a couple of times. And one of them, he might not have known a thing. He might not have been privy to it, but the percentage of it was, it, it's been rumored that uh, a percentage of his purses would go to Liston for, um, for taking this dive. Yeah, no, makes sense. You know, and, and Liston says that, like I said, Liston does mention that in an interview. So it's, um, it's speculative. I personally think it's probable. Um, I'll, tell, and I'll, 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 I'll tell you why later once we get into the uh, the, latter, the latter stages of Sonny's life. But. I'll, I'll tell you what, though. If you look at that phantom punch, Muhammad Ali, he cocks that right hand. He hits Sonny Liston with it, and from the angle that it's viewed at, you see that punch ripple from the top of his head through like the back right like a lap of him mm -hmm. and then you also see that ripple recoil back from uh muhammad ali's hand and then just go right through his right breast like it just it perfect boom you see it through his sunny liston's whole body boom and then you see it ripple through muhammad ali's chest coming back like he hit that man hard um i believe he took a dive but whether there was money or not on the line, I think he was just uh, speeding up the inevitable. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said. Uh, well, it's quoted as being the fight that like launched, launched, and launched one man's career and ruined another. And um, you know, I think that's that's largely true. Um, I don't know. I, I it's it's hard to say. I, I mean. In the final analysis, let's read this. In the final analysis, it remains inconclusive whether the blow in Lewiston was a genuine knockout punch. The fact that Liston didn't complain about the clear breach of boxing rules being declared knocked out without account 
and Ali's obvious state of bewilderment shouting at listed, nobody will believe this, and asking his handlers, did I hit him, confirm most people's belief that Liston took a dive. Um, in my opinion, I think that's, I think you're, I think I'm with you, and, and I think it's both true. I think those shots, those shots landed, but I don't think they landed in knockout fashion. I think that they landed enough for Liston to say, this is the one I'm going down with. And yes, like I'm waiting for followed. a fall. That's a good punch. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, I do think that, um, you know, it, it, it it's 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 terrible. And this is this is the tragedy of Sonny Liston, you know, because I just think that um, the man had so many demons and so he had so many demons in in I, I use this word deliberately to be ironic, but in so many masters. Um, and I, and I don't, I don't mean that in a, I, I, I do mean that in a racial sense in some ways. And then in other ways, I mean, his own masters, um, you know, because I just think that he was a, a victim of his own environment, but also I mean, a victim you, of his own. You, problem. you're, you're apprehensive to say that, but I mean, even he was quoted, he's like, just tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a horrible tragedy. And it, and I think. I think deep down he probably I, I I wonder if it was one of the great regrets of his life. Um and uh we'll get into that. We're gonna get into that next. We're gonna take a quick a, a quick quick break. Um one more break and then we're gonna dive we're gonna dive into the uh the aftermath of uh Liston Ali 2 um and the Phantom Punch um and what happened to Sonny Liston following that uh following that incredible iconic moment. So hang with us, we'll be right back. talk a little bit here um a little bit further about the aftermath of an unbelievable career um a great career too by the way you know i don't want it to sound like it's all um you know tragedy for sonny liston he had an amazing boxing career his his life in the ring was quite impressive one of the greatest careers of all time i mean the 26 fight win streak um the four iconic heavyweight championship fights in a row across um across three years was you know a, a moment in sports history not to be not to be underspoken of um but after the fact that um after the phantom punch and after that very controversial uh knockout loss to muhammad ali he would go on he'd move to sweden um and continue his um professional career there and um he would go on to 
really find even more success in the in the in the sport. He'd he'd rattle off four victories over in Sweden. Um, he would come back to America in 1968 and fight um, Bill McMurray in Nevada, returning to Vegas. Um, and he would actually go on another um, 13 fight win streak after that Muhammad Ali loss. So it's not as though he was washed, right? Right. Well, I mean, once a bad person, always a bad person. You can't. He he's not. He would never be washed up because he 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 was never taught. You know what I mean? He just was, he was just the baddest man in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Short of condition or short of like traditional pugilism. You had to study the art of boxing to be better than this man. And even then, it's a coin flip. And he did actually get another crack at a heavyweight championship. it uh in 1969 uh, to Leotis Martin. Um, unfortunately, he would get knocked out in the ninth round of that fight. Um, it wasn't the last time he saw the ring. He did end on a positive note. Um, he took he took a couple months off and then he got back into training and then fought Chuck Wepner um, to close out a career. He um, it it was you know he he ends on a on a victory which is good but it seems like things outside of the ring are starting to truly fall apart um for him um i think that he became involved in a lot of uh and basically a second life i mean he was married um <clears throat> with children um i believe he had fathered several children but i don't think he had much of a relationship with any of them um even you know, even before this point in time, um, you know, I think he remained mostly illiterate through most of his adult life. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately things took a turn, pretty dark turn for him. Um, it seemed as though he, like I said, he had been doing interviews, um, and it seemed like he had been saying some things publicly. Um, he had been, he'd become, involved in cocaine use he was spending time with sammy davis jr like i said and um in vegas and sort of living that vegas lifestyle um a lot of recreational drugs a lot of alcohol and a lot of addiction uh seemed to be a part of the story um um, and unfortunately um that uh early before i get to the the tragic conclusion do you have anything you want to add um, yeah, no, the only thing, uh, so with him being so closely, uh, you know, tied with, uh, all the, uh, like the, uh, the dark side of society, you, t- that tends to brush up on you. And it was rumored by a couple of his trainers, uh, Johnny Tuco and his, uh, one of, I believe one of his managers that were on the up and up, uh, Jack, uh, uh, Nillen, uh, they, they did uh it was rumored that on top of the cocaine use he did like heroin or did use heroin as well but um right you know you can only play with fire so much before you get burned yeah and the thing about the heroin considerations and this is this is where things get a little bit um strange and bizarre um with the end of his life is that it was very clear that he was using recreational drugs and he was living a double life and it seemed like he had um there's a funny story that was told on this podcast. I'll reiterate it here. Um, and I apologize to the, uh, to the authors of the podcast who presented this story, but I just thought it was really a, a funny note. Um, he was 
in England once, and it, he at this point he he had been pretty much um, involved in quite a few affairs uh, with uh, and, and prostitution and such. And um, according to the story, he played he paid ten pounds for a lady of the night, and um, when addressed about it, he was he said ten pounds that's all you paid. He's like, I think you underpaid for her. And he said, yeah, well, what about all the sandwiches she ate? <laughs> which, which, in my opinion, is 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 a... Uh, like, <laughs> what do you mean? He's charging these prostitutes for the sandwiches, for feeding them, which, I mean... Yo, man, if she <laughs> step up to the table, she can buy the sandwiches. He ain't playing. I mean, he basically invoiced a prostitute for feeding her, which you came up here and ate some sandwiches. So, hey, if it's all, if it's a transaction we're doing, a transaction hey man, was that's, had both ways. Food ain't free. That's all I'm saying. But uh, regardless, um, that's just a funny tidbit, and it's not funny. The story's not funny because it's sad where his life went. But um, I thought that was a pretty funny anecdote. <laughs> Um, what about the sandwiches? How about them goddamn sandwiches she was eating? I mean, good lord. Um, Let me get like, you know, like, I'll give you eight. <laughs> I mean, she didn't put up a fight. He was dressed later for her, so she, she I mean, I hope she was fine. Yeah. Anyone in, um, where was he when that happened? He was in England. Because it yeah, was referred dude, to anyone that, would be that, hard pressed to put up a fight there in England at that time. I don't know exactly how the English boxing scene was, but it's. You're looking at the baddest man on whatever side of the globe he's on. Yeah. Or I don't even think this is whatever side of the globe Muhammad Ali is on. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Whatever he's not, whatever side he's not on. Right. Um on a less funny note. Um so on January fifth, nineteen seventy one, um, he was unfortunately found dead um by his wife in their Las Vegas home. Um on returning home from a two-week trip, uh, his wife had smelled a foul odor emanating from the main bedroom, and on entering, saw him slumped against the bed, a uh, broken foot bench on the floor. And uh, authorities theorized that, it, that he was undressing for bed when he fell over backwards with such force that he broke the rail of the chair of the bench. Um, and uh, it seems as though to me there's a lot, and this is where it gets kind of sad because he, he unfortunately, he he died very young. Um, you, it was, it's estimated that he was probably somewhere around 40 years old. So, I mean, I mean, it's just, it's just horrible and a, a horrible way to go. Um, because it appears that though there was a lethal injection of, of heroin, um, that produced that, you know, officially was, that killed him of lung congestion and heart failure. Right. Uh, however, <clears throat> and this is where things get weird. There was a, there was a small amount of heroin in a balloon found in the kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. And his loved ones had come in, and when he was found dead, they called, obviously, uh, they called an ambulance. They didn't call the police, uh, I believe. It was, and he had been dead for a really long time. Um, so that that's a little weird already, right? Because, like, I mean, I guess it's not that weird, you know. Frantic wife, the, yeah, yeah, frantic wife. She doesn't know what to do. That's not I that. Need weird. an ambulance. He's, yeah, he's he's, he's super dead. Um, but what's what is weird is that it was his official um 
toxicology report was that he was too too decomposed for the test to be conclusive of anything. However, there was heroin found in the house, and it seems as though that it was a lethal injection of heroin. Uh, right. However, it was largely known by quite a few people that he was like deathly afraid of needles. Mm-hmm. Right. I was gonna. That's what I was gonna add. And including his up to his, you know, he would have dentist dental procedures done without anesthetic because he was so afraid of these needles so we're talking very and this is a man who had his jaw broken and didn't care so he probably wasn't scared of a couple needles and scrapes and or not needle but a couple like you know pries and scrapes from a uh he's like just don't poke me with the needle pull what you want yeah 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 right exactly so and there were no syringes or needles found on the scene however this balloon of heroin was found and like if the family came in to clean the home to clean up because they didn't want him found in that state and they you know they're going to conduct an investigation as to what, what what happened here and they wanted to clean it up but they didn't grab the, ha- the heroin in a balloon and like it's a, it's reported that it was a quarter ounce of, of heroin which is a pretty significant amount of heroin um in my opinion because there was no spoon to cook the heroin found there's no tourniquet to wrap around his arm there was no um there, the heroin was there. There was a small amount of marijuana as well, um, but there really was no drug paraphernalia to be found, and that could have been cleaned up. But why was why not the heroin as well? Um, in my opinion, what happened was is that Sonny had been kind of given up the go a little bit on the fight fix with Ali because he had been complaining that he wasn't getting paid, right? Yeah, and I. I think that what happened, I personally think that what happened, it was, it's been reported that at that time that that was an actual method of murder by the Italian mafia is lethal injection. And, and I think that because he had been talking so much about not getting paid his due from the, um, from the, from Muhammad Ali fights, he says, he said something along the lines of Ali keeps winning, but I'm not getting paid. And like, that's an indication to me that that fight was a fixed and B that the mob felt no use to pay him or weren't paying him timely enough. And then he started voicing himself, uh, voicing his grievances about this publicly or in interviews. And they had just about enough of him talking about it is what it seems like to me. Yeah. You know, honestly, um, the, if it was ruled lethal injection after so long, like, because that's the thing, you see that in there if you don't have, because, um, you know, I'd like to, I always try to uh, use uh, Occam's razor whenever. Um, Simplest answer is the actual, the correct one, typically. Yeah, so, like, let's say he doesn't like needles, there is no needles on the scene, there's no heroin cooked, you could snort it, you could snort heroin. Yeah, yeah, but but it's very, very difficult to 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 produce a lethal dose of that that's what i'm saying like for him to like like maybe like maybe if you parachute it or something like eat it and then like snort something and then like i don't even think that you you stumble back i don't even think oh yeah no you're right because like intra like almost needs to be intravenous 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 is like the most obvious obviously the far away the most common way um he had actually gotten into an accident too, I guess, recently. So he had some, like, he had some, he was banged up and he had some scars um, that were perceived as track marks. But mm, 
this this story about the needles about his tariff you know being terrified of needles it seemed way too credible um like his dentist insisted his um his preacher um or the the, the reverend at the church he attended like terrified insisted that he was terrified of needles i think i just think that they're well, let's read a couple of the theories, okay? Uh, some claim that Liston was murdered. There are several theories as to why. Publicist Harold Conrad and others believe Liston had been deeply involved as a bill collector of a loan sharking ring in Las Vegas, where he tried to muscle, when he tried to muscle um, in for a bigger share, Conrad thinks his employers got him very drunk, took him home, and stuck him with a needle. Uh, theory two, professional gambler Lem Banker insists that Lin Liston was murdered by drug dealers with whom he'd become involved. Banker said he was told by police that Liston had been seen at a house that would be the target of a drug raid. Banker said, Sheriff Lamb told me, tell your pal Sonny to stay away from the West Side because we're going to bust the drug dealers. Banker later learned that the police told Liston the same thing to his face. Liston was allegedly present at dealer Earl Cage's residence during a raid by narcotics detectives. Because of that, Cage may have thought Sonny was an informant and shot him with a hot dose as retribution. Or uh, option three, or theory three, the mob prom promised Liston some money to throw the second Ali fight, but they never paid him. As the years passed and Liston's financial situation worsened, he got angry and told the mob he would go to public with the story unless they gave him the money. And that got him killed. And for me, that's, that's the one. Very that's lovely. the one for me. That one makes it's, the most sense to me. It's really not even far fetched because it's that's but he's been tied with the mob his like almost entire life, at least sure. his entire professional life. Yeah, Sonny Liston uh, retired from his career. I say retired, but unfortunately was forced into retirement by his untimely death. Um, with a career record of fifty and four, um, and he he won his final bout against Chuck Wepner on June 29th, nineteen seventy. Um, in Jersey City, New Jersey, um, an icon of American sports, an icon of the game of boxing. Um, he has been portrayed in film. He has been the um, the subject of of many documentaries. Um, he was he will always be tied with Muhammad Ali. Um, he's he's a his story is both tragic, um, triumphant, and everywhere in between. Um, Errol, what do you what, what are your final thoughts about Sonny Liston um, and and his um, life? True, uh, it's he's just a true true test of uh, what uh, the human condition is like, willing and can endure, and uh, what can come from that. Like you know, like what uh, what flowers can grow through the concrete if uh, if there are any. Right. Yeah. Um, couple things um very sad because like uh like we were saying every corner it was just uh it was never uh never never it never seemed like it was a there was a good thing for him to do or like a better option but uh after he was interviewed he was you know he was the heavyweight champion of the world so he's granted a couple interviews and in one of them he was asked uh what would you like to do after you retire and uh he said he wanted to uh uh he said he wanted to uh work a uh uh sorry work at a uh like a uh, a boys club like an at risk boys club um wow he wanted to do like you know have like a boxing club 
Mm. So he wanted to give back. Yeah, he was like, well, if I can do anything, it's just like I'll just hang out with kids who would be in like a situation like I'd be in and just like, you know, um, just kind of relax. He was also quoted to uh, prefer he, he preferred being in the company of uh, well, children, of course, like that's why he wanted to do the uh, do the boys club and mm. uh, old people because uh, he didn't he he viewed them as non threatening. Yeah. If he was able to be vulnerable with them and they could see him as, you know, not a monster and as just a person, then, you know, but if you talk to any, like, you know, a, a girl or guy your age, you just see a hulking individual and you're just like, but once he would, you know, portray to a, you know, younger old person that, hey, I'm, you know, I'm not a threat. I'm just a friendly guy. They would, they would get along. He would get along a lot better with the, with that kind of crowd just because he, you know, never had to prove anything to him. Yeah, there's just like this, there's like this clear, very clear throughout, you know, doing the research for his story. Um, there's just a very clear underlying underpinning of of goodness. Um, everyone, everyone in his immediate circle, like because uh, he was painted as just the bad guy. They're, oh, yeah. They always said he was a soft spoken, nice person. And yeah, I think that's old. it. Yeah, I think that's true. Me too. I like to. That's why I'd like to think. Uh, you know, um, as as bad as the hand he was dealt, he did all he could and um, did what any other boxer did, and he took it on the chin. Yeah, I I I don't want to exonerate him entirely from some of the some of the decision making because you know at a certain point, at a certain point, you got to be responsible for your actions, and it sounds like especially towards the end of his life, you know, he he doesn't sound like he had any interest in fathering his children. Um, being a good husband and being there for his, um, you know, for his wife in any real way, it sounds like he treated her pretty poorly. Um, so there are parts of his life, especially his personal life, that like I just I just can't endorse in any way or um, you know excuse um, for for me personally, just on a moral level. Um, but I I do think that um, you know, he, and and it's not like it. it his wife was quoted as saying that he, when he was there, he was good. He was a good person for them. But um, I just think that there was just so much for his mind to juggle on an emotional level, on a psychological level. Um, I, I don't, don't think, I don't think good I, decisions were in his programming. It, exactly. I feel like um, ever since he like, it never really had like a lot of options, just like either a or B, they're just both bad. It's almost like uh, if you spend your whole life like not able to like you know make like a reasonable choice and like I like I was saying earlier like have those first world problems like you don't know how to have those first world problems like you just yeah. you just simply can't do it. He had a uh, no blueprint for how to be a decent dad. If anything, being the best dad according to like you know in his mind would probably be just literally not being there just not hitting your kids like you know what i mean if you're not there then you're not throwing them on the farm kind of thing it's a uh, hard to uh uh to uh to quote uh to quote daniel b johnson not to uh you know tell you guys how the sausage is made but a little quote there uh how are you supposed to or how am i supposed to give love when i never got love yeah and what so the true. hell am i punching for <laughs> right 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 yeah the violence is the violence is an outlet for him it always was 
it's a powerful life. You know, it's a great life. So powerful that's the story of Penny Wilson. Man. Very powerful man. Include, in fact, ESPN.com list of hardest hitters in heavyweight history. He is ranked second, um, only behind, uh, only behind uh, uh, Mike Tyson. George Foreman. So. No, oh, er, uh, Ernie Shavers, maybe. Um, uh, one of the two. I don't, I don't see the list, but he's ranked second. So behind Tyson's on there somewhere. George Foreman. He's in the mix. We'll say that. Um, um but, I've seen, I've seen, uh. Uh, I, I've seen him confidently, or Sonny Liston confidently, uh, like top four, top five, like best puncher or strongest punchers of all time. But the quote that I like to go by is uh, uh, George Foreman, who uh, considered Sonny Liston like a father figure. Um, yeah, he started training with him, right? I remember yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, uh, what a career he had, too. Oh, that's see, that's you know, this boxing thing might be uh might not even be bi- biography, be you know, boxography. Boxography, I love it. And just work our way up to the modern times. But yeah, George Foreman, arguably too, the strongest puncher of all time, uh, was quoted as saying, I would not want to fight him. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I think I've him. heard that. And then they said in sparring he was like the hardest, it was the hardest jab he had ever taken, I believe. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, but um, yeah, sir. I think I said he wanted to run like a like a boys club. Yeah, he uh, sorry, he uh, he wanted to work in a youth center. Ah, okay, gotcha. Like, come on. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, no, no. He's he's a he's a like I said. There's goodness. There's goodness within. Uh, uh, so if sorry. if there's anything with even with all the bad choices, I've always you I've always thought a really good uh a really good indicator of a person's uh like actual like you know like a moral compass is how you treat the disenfranchised right yeah old people children he would beat the fuck out of you know regular (laughs) people like just you know regular officers whatever authorities right exactly people who he thought were just like you know franchised exactly people who thought they're trying to get pull a fast one on him like whatever he could and as much as he could but like you know old women children loved him just because he's like He's like, we're not, we don't need to fight. And they're like, oh, yeah. Like, that's, what do you mean? He's like, no, I'm just, I'm just used to like just swinging. Like, you know, that's just, I'm always on, I'm a bad guy. And they're like, okay, like, you don't seem like one. And he's like, okay, just, you know, he's actually able to uh, relax. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a, it's an incredible story. Um, We're going to wrap it up here. This is, this has been the story, uh, the biography of Sonny Liston. Um, This Um, is an, our number one biography in the biography series. Um, so happy to start that series off with such a, a legend of the, uh, of the trade. Yeah. Um, uh, quoted by um, his boxing historian, Johnny Walker as uh, one of, if not the most uh, avoided fighters of all time. Interesting. You know what? And that makes a perfect sense. I, I don't doubt that for even a second. And um, maybe we'll put that on the, uh, we'll put that in the notes. Uh, important. The, Cause the that's last so, thing I've, the last thing I will leave on is um, I, I truly don't believe that Rocky Marciano dodged him. I think Rocky Marciano really was cleaning up the end of his career at that time. And yeah. while he probably would have got beat by Sonny Liston, there's no reason for him to fight. I think he, yeah. I think Sonny Liston would have beat him 100%. Could have been a passing of the torch, you know. That's that's just just two ships in the night, really. Yeah. Look what, I mean, Sonny had to do it. Rocky's lucky. Yeah, for sure. 
So that's it for Sony Listen. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, what do we got next, Daryl? The next, uh, so our next uh, podcast. Um, yes, that's our next next peripheral views podcast episode. We are going to dive into the music series. Um, yeah, we're going to talk Marty about Robbins, right? Yeah, that's right. We're going to talk about the record, the iconic Western country record, Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs by Marty Robbins. We're going to dive into the production of that. Um, probably have a little a couple samples or two um, of some of our favorite tracks. We'll we'll dive into the lyrical content, the stories, all that. Um, you already know and then, it's big iron. Oh well, you never know. We'll 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 dive into that. We'll we'll unpack that whole thing. Um, front to back each song um and then uh that should be we should be recording that within the next week or two and so just keep an eye on our twitter account um happy launch day is coming on memorial day so that will be next monday these will both be available um to you guys when you guys are listening to these for the first time um it will be memorial day uh, monday may 29th 2023 uh Next week we will do be doing the Marty Robbins record. Um, we'll do that. We'll do that episode, and the following week after that, or potentially even in the same week, we will be diving into another. We'll be adding to the biography series. Uh, we're going to talk uh, Wendy Carlos. Uh, Wendy Carlos is an iconic figure in film, um, uh, an amazing composer with an amazing story. Um, we're going to tell that story the best we can, the best we're able to do it. Um, so that'll be in a couple of weeks. Look out for the next two episodes. They should be available in the next couple of weeks. And uh, we appreciate you guys listening. Thanks again for tuning in. Um, this was a fun one to do. We were looking forward to getting it done. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Yes, yeah, appreciate you guys off. coming by. We will see you guys in the next round of Peripheral Views. So look out.